This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. everybody to Wrestling Omakase. It is episode number 104 and this week I am very happy to be joined by a returning guest Mr. Sean Sidor. Hello Sean. Hi John how's it going? Pretty good how's it going with you? Uh, it's going well you know it's been a uh, very busy weekend of wrestling and we're gonna talk a lot about that on the show. You know we have you know a couple of G1 shows an AEW show and then in sort of other stuff that we're not going to talk about, there's also an Evolve show this weekend. And then as we're recording this, there is a WCW pay-per-view going on. <laughs> WCW. 55-year-old so, man just uh, got pinned on like a 50-year-old man or whatever. And yep. I, I do. I mean, it's funny just to think about how much older they are than like the WCW main eventers. You're just saying that off air. Yeah. Uh, it's like when all everybody thought those people were ancient, like Hogan and Piper and Savage, they're actually younger. <laughs> well, at least, at least they didn't actually put them in the main event. That's true. Then it would have really liked WCW. But in the meantime, we're not here to talk about Extreme Rules, thank God, because it means I, I turned it off and do not want to watch it. So it's part of the reason why I figured I could record Sunday night. It's like it give me, it'll keep me from watching Extreme Rules. But we are going to talk about the two G1 shows, uh, days two and three of the grade one climax from Oda City Gymnasium in Tokyo. Um, We're going to talk about AEW Fight for the Fallen, which took place last night as well. But before we get to all that, since you are, of course, our the voice of wrestling resident Ring of Honor expert, I wanted to get your thoughts on what's going on with Ring of Honor right now. So... For some background for those listening at home, if you're not aware, Ring of Honor is currently not doing too hot when it comes to drawing fans to come see them at a live show. Um, it was in this week's Observer. If you compare where Ring of Honor is at this point uh, in the year versus where they were at the same point last year, if you take out Madison Square Garden, which you really should because that show is, uh, you know, whether you want to say it was drawn by the elite or drawn by New Japan. I think it's pretty clear for everybody in the building and who they reacted to. It was not drawn by the current stars of Ring of Honor. Um, so you take that out. Also take out the New Orleans show from the previous year, just to be fair, at like WrestleMania weekend. And also, you know, that was heavily drawn by Kenny Omega and Cody in the semi-main. 
But so if you take those two shows out, you have last year was 1,213 per show, um, about 26,695 over 22 shows. This year is 19,195 over 23 shows, which is about 835 per show. So you're talking about about a 31% decline in attendance year over year so far. Um, I don't know if that's about what I expected when they lost the Elite guys. I think it's maybe a little higher than I expected. But then if you look at where things really look bad now is the upcoming shows. If you look at the attendance for next weekend at the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City, uh, Boston the following evening, and then then like... uh, Toronto for their summer super card or whatever they're calling it um, in the weekend of SummerSlam, uh, Columbus or not Columbus, Milwaukee, Chicago, like all these upcoming shows. If you look at those seat maps, I mean, it looks way worse than it's going to be like, like they will be lucky to get 800 people in the building for those shows. Right now, it looks like a week out from Manhattan, which used to be their strongest market. I mean, Hammerstein, you, mm-hmm. you go to, you've gone to shows at Hammerstein, Sean, how many years in a row were they selling these shows out like well before, uh, you know, all eighteen hundred tickets well before the the, the date? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I used to remember having to make up my mind about a Hammerstein Ring of Honor show, like you know, pretty much the day they went on sale. And now we're talking a week out, and they've sold what looks to me like looking at the map like maybe four hundred tickets. So right. that's really bad. I mean, they even shut down the the upper balcony. They stopped selling the seats there because you know it looks so bad. So what I guess my first question, Sean, is um, the the first collapse, the one to eight thirty five, you know, and then the second collapse. Did you see either one of these coming? And you know, other than I guess the really obvious factors, what do you think the root causes here are for what's happening to Ring of Honor's attendance? So, uh, just to go back for a second, what was that number you said? The initial decline was twenty five percent, thirty one percent, thirty one percent. Okay. Um, yeah, so when I was looking at before MSG, it's like sort of a couple weeks beforehand, I was looking at some of the shows that Ring of Honor had run the first part of the year compared to sort of um, the last times they've been in those markets. I had just done some you know basic research like anyone else can do um, just by searching around. And it, it, it seemed to me like the attendance, obviously it had gone down, but it had not gone down like it, it hadn't cratered. Like I know some people were thinking it would crater immediately in like January and February, March. Um, while it definitely did go down, it didn't go down, I guess, as much as some people were thinking. So, I mean, like I said, with the guys like the Umbucks and Cody leaving, uh, there is the expected drop. And I think part of the reason why it wasn't as big is some of those shows were helped by the fact that tickets were on sale before they left. Um, so I, I felt like you wouldn't really see the true sort of impact of their departures until sort of after MSG where you're starting to sell tickets for shows where you know they're not going to be there because they're not there anymore. Um, so, so I guess everything through G1 Supercard, um, I guess was, I don't know, I don't know if I was expecting a certain number or a certain percentage, but I felt like, okay, the like around 25, 30% or 31%, as you said, that was sort of, I, I guess close to what I would have expected. Um, but obviously the drop has gone down um, significantly since MSG and especially after um, once AEW really got in a full swing here with Double or Nothing and the shows they've been doing. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, they did. I thought they did a much better job than I would have anticipated signing up people after the elite left. Um, you know, they got guys like, you know, Bendito, PCO and Jeff Cobb and a whole slew of others to sort of fill out the roster. But it's, you know, I, I'd say best in the world was probably the first um, major show after MSG. And, you know, I mean, it was a, and that was, you know, had no, it was basically just a strict ROH talent show, no real New Japan names on it or anything like that. And, you know, it really showed uh, the card was, was I mean, I I reviewed the show for the site. I thought it was a, you know, I thought it was a good show, but it certainly wasn't a, a you know, great show by any means. There weren't any, um, like, must-see matches, and it just felt like a promotion that's right now just sort of uh, rudderless right now. And especially with the shows upcoming this coming weekend, you know, you know, 400 people in the Hammerstein ballroom, which, you know, like you said, it was a show that over, or a venue over the last couple of years that has you know, regularly sold out very easily. That's, you know, it's very worrying, very worrying for sure. Yeah. Now, I think if you look at it, there was there were some signs of like softness already, even before the elite left, like the second half of last year, they did draw. They did fail to sell out the Hammerstein for like, uh, I guess, a July TV taping last year, but they, they drew sixteen hundred. I wouldn't, so obviously, I wouldn't be surprised if that was more of the fact that it was a TV taping because who wants to go to Ring of Honor TV taping right. because they have a reputation of being long. In fact, I actually have a story. Um, so I did buy a ticket for the show on Saturday in Manhattan um, because I think when they first announced it, they said it was going to be uh, Manhattan Mayhem. And for those who don't know a lot of Ring of Honor history, that's a show that's historically been... Um, or it's historically been a show that has featured at least some sort of like major shock thing that happens, whether it be, you know, world title changes or something crazy. Like for example, the show that you and I were at two years ago, uh, I think was one of the most recent Manhattan Mayhems they did. It was where the Hardys uh, won the tag titles from the Unbox. Uh, so stuff like that. Um, so I bought a ticket, you know, that shows built up a reputation, a positive one, I feel. And I thought, okay, you know, this is going to be a, you know, should be a good show. But then I, I didn't find out this until after the fact. I don't think ROH announced this until after the fact, until tickets had already gone on sale. But then they revealed it was a TV taping, and I was just like, oh, man, I don't, I really don't want to go now. I mean, I was <laughs> going to go, but not TV taping. I, I, I can't. I mean, I've never been to a TV taping for ROH, but, you know, just, just from what I've heard from people over the years, it's just a very long and excruciating show so i was kind of peeved that they didn't say that until after i bought the ticket and after they went on sale so and i guess there's a reason for that right you know yeah i knew what they were doing there so i want to go here's what i want to go back to because i think what it comes down to me is they don't have a niche anymore there's no there is no there's no space in the wrestling landscape that they're filling that needs to be filled. And that's ultimately what, you know, why they're in the spot they're in. I mean, what it comes back to is, you know, final battle 2018. I'm sitting up in the first balcony. I went to that show at Hammerstein, a show that most people liked a lot more than I did. You were there too. Yes. Actually. And I can tell, you know, what it comes, what I'll never forget about attending that show was being surrounded by people in that section. Um, two groups of people in that section, in that section. There's a, a large group of people 
um, in the rows behind me who spent the entire show shouting memes from being the elite, right? So that's that's yeah. component, major component number one of the fan base. And then there was a smaller group of people quietly talking to each other. Like there was a guy quietly talking to his friend about New Japan World. And there's another guy quietly talking to his friend about like New Japan stuff, especially like after like Paige and Cobb because they were both in New Japan a lot that year. So again, that's component number two, a smaller component, but a component there of people who were really into New Japan and are into like this idea of seeing what is, you know, according to a lot of widespread critical acclaim, like the best wrestling in the world, right? And I, I think and even if you don't, even if you, the listener, doesn't does not agree with uh, that assessment of New Japan, it is widely believed to, among like hardcore fans to be like the best. So, you know, you have those two components of the fan base. Um, what I didn't hear in my section was people very excited about anything else Ring of Honor was doing. There was no one very excited about Matt Taven. There was no one excitedly talking about Jay Lethal. There was no one excitedly talking about the Briscoes, for that matter. It was people who were very into the, into the elite, and th- those people clearly went to AW. And it was people who were very into New Japan. And if you're those people, you can go to fucking New Japan shows in the U.S. You don't need to go to Ring of Honor, especially when they don't not gonna have New Japan talent around. But even you know, it, it, I guess it kind of felt like more in in the pre AEW era, like you were seeing guys who were in New Japan a lot, but like you know, with the elite guys, but it doesn't feel like you're seeing guys, you know, like if you go to a standard Garden Variety Ring of Honor show now, you know, you're basically going to see Jeff Cobb, who's not even on the Manhattan show. He's in New Japan a lot. Other than that, I mean, you know, you're seeing like, oh, a guy who did a tour here or there, basically. Like they have less New Japan regulars than ever. And they're at the same time, they're running more New Japan, like New Japan's running more US shows, shows than ever. Um, so, I mean, like, if you're a hardcore New Japan fan, there's no reason to go to Ring of Honor for that reason. And, you know, you, you can go to Dallas, which, you know, as much as people dunked on uh, New Japan for that, the empty seats or whatever, like, Ring of Honor would kill to draw nearly 5,000 fans right. who are in the U.S. at this point. And, you know, I think Ring of Honor, you know, they everybody's going to make fun of them for, for New Japan running their buildings. And it is going to be a very bad look when probably, you know, six days after um, Ring of Honor draws like 600 people in Hammerstein, whatever the final number ends up being, you know, six days later, New Japan's going to put up their tickets on sale for the Fighting Spirit Unleashed tour. And they're probably going to sell, I, I mean, my prediction right now is they're going to sell Hammerstein in like 10 minutes. I really don't think they're going to have a lot of trouble selling 1,800 tickets. Maybe I'm being overconfident on New Japan, and but I just, they don't come here that often to the East Coast. I think there's 1,800 New Japan fans who are going to buy. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's been a I really, really been a really untapped market by them. They really haven't since they started coming here over the last couple of years to the United States. They really haven't. It's mainly yeah. in California and, and Texas. Yeah, so I think I mean, look, if you're Ring of Honor, is it embarrassing to draw like one third of the crowd of your major partner and have them sell out the, the same building six days after you just ran it? Am I reading too much in that, Sean? Or don't don't you think that'll look embarrassing for me? Oh, Ring of Honor? yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely agree. And and, and like you said, you know, sort of after um, after final battle last year, obviously any fans who are you know big fans of the elite, they're following all eight now because that's where the Unbucks and Cody and Hangman Page are and SCU. And if you're a New Japan fan, you know 
sure, there's guys coming over, but you know, as we saw in the last couple shows this year, they're sending over sort of second-tier guys, and now we know that you know there are people in New Japan who don't like working for Ring of Honor. You know, regardless of what people like Juice Robinson would say to the Observer or whatnot. And yeah, no, it's just a promotion that's just sort of it's just sort of existing, and it's just sort of in a uh, just sort of a downward spiral at the moment. And I, I feel like they could have done a better job with sort of the new talents that they've brought in. Now, that now some of them they have done a good job with. Like, for instance, I, I feel like uh, the Brody King PCO tag team has, and that, and that whole villain enterprises group has sort of far exceeded my expectations from when it was first announced. Um, the Brody King and PCO, especially, they've been a very good tag team. And while I, I don't think, and I know this is a weak year for tag team of the year. And while I don't think, don't think they would win. I, I do think they would be a team that's at least deserving to be in the conversation. So in some regards, they've, they've had, they've built up some of, some of their talent, but then people like, you know, Bandito hasn't really done a lot. Um, you know, Mark Haskins and Tracy Williams, both, you know, really solid wrestlers, but it seems like they're losing almost all of their matches. Um, and then you got stuff like, Roosh being on the pre-show of the last pay-per-view, not being on the actual pay-per-view, uh, even though you know he's still undefeated and they're still you know pushing him, it it just seems like they're not taking the fullest advantage of the new talent they signed to sort of replace what what people who left. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, I mean, if you watch Fight for the uh, not Fight for the Fun, Best in the World, I mean, Jeff Cobb is losing in ten minutes to Matt Taven, which I know was like a timing issue, but still looked like fucking shit for him. Either way, I don't, and I don't know how that was a timing issue because they went off. I remember this. They went they went off the air like with five minutes left. So I don't know why there was <laughs> maybe a it's a maybe it's a fuck you Jeff Cobb issue because the rumor is that he uh, like went to Simon Ring of Honor just to sign with New Japan. So maybe he just told them, "I'm not renewing." <laughs> I'm well, I know, I know that I know that he did an interview. I saw this online like a couple months ago, where I th- I think what happened with him is that he got really scared after the whole Lucha Underground thing with locking people down for years and years and years. So he said that he made a comment saying that essentially he doesn't want to sign any long term contracts with anyone. I think he mentioned that I think Impact offered him a two year de- a two year deal with them, and he turned it down because it was too long. Yeah. Uh, so I think he signed a one year and I think, you know, the new Japan connection was already there. You know, he'd already worked with new Japan at that point. So yeah, I'm sure part of the a big reason why he signed with the ROH was to sort of continue that relationship with new Japan. And you know, I mean, it wouldn't shock me at all if his next contract is just with new Japan. Yeah. And he yeah, like, that he's the next album. So anyway, so like Jeff Cobb, whatever the reason Jeff Cobb's losing in 10 minutes, Bandito is losing a TV title match to Shane Taylor, who, you know, God bless Shane Taylor. He's been pretty good this year, but he's I, I don't ever see him being, like, a major superstar. Right. And it just feels like that's the kind of guy they're pushing is, like, the kind of guy they're, they're not worried about losing, which doesn't exactly make, you know, the show super exciting. I mean, Dalton Castle, he's probably, you know, he's very broken down and probably not going anywhere. He beats Root. He beats uh, Dragon Lee. Um, you know... What the, what the hell's happened? There was another one that, on that show where I was just like, what the uh, fuck? The, the NWA ran all their angles on the show. Yeah, but there's another one, like a newer guy. Well, not just a newer guy jobbing, but like, like basically like just pushing Kenny King at all 
is another one where it feels like, well, because you're not going to leave us, we're just going to keep pushing you over and over again, even yeah. though, and, and, we're like, and, I, what, like year five of this not working or something? And, and Kenny King, you know, he wins the best of three series with Jay Lethal, which ended at that pay-per-view. And at, that, at this Manhattan show, who's getting the title shot against Matt Taven? Yeah, Jay, Jay Lethal. Lethal. Uh, yeah. So that's like, that's like WWE booking. So I don't know. Like, it just feels like, it feels like a very rudderless promotion, and it feels like the only real... Um, you know, direction is pushing people who we think are going to stay. And it's not resulting in, you know, yeah. a promotion that anybody really wa- wants to watch. So if these attendances look real, Sean, what is that going to be like for the rest of Ringwater's year? Like if these, if these attendances don't pick up, like are they now like the number five promotion or something in, in America? Um, well, I think. Well, first of all, I should say I think part of the problem with the with the perception of ROH is that they're running these massive buildings that they really shouldn't be running. Now, I, I you know I understand that they probably booked some of these buildings well in advance, and there's really nothing you could do about that with changing the venues. You know, once you get closer, if you're not selling enough tickets, but I think going forward, they really need to like change their philosophy of where they book buildings. Like at this point, I think they need to just go back for New York City, just go back to Terminal Five because. You know that's that's the kind of size building they can run at this point because they're not going to sell the hammer sun anytime soon um so i i guess it's interesting because obviously you know aw has surpassed them um new japan yeah new japan has surpassed them um new japan took came here used them to establish their footing yeah. in the market mm-hmm. took like half their fucking fans and, and now look look at they're basically giving them the kiss off I mean, they're running that we didn't even mention. They're running those Fighting Spirit Elite shows in in Ring of Honor's markets in their buildings. Yeah, the same weekend mm-hmm. Ring of Honor might have a pay per view. Yeah, I mean that's they're having a show in Vegas. Vegas end of September is usually their pay per view. So not only will they not have any New Japan town on a pay per view theoretically, but they will be running a pay per view the same weekend as New Japan's running American shows. That's like incredible. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. It feels like a slow kiss off, basically. Of, yeah. like, New Japan's going to just keep sending lesser and lesser talent, you know? I mean, like you were saying before, you know, we were down to just, like, Evil and Sonata and Goto, and then, like, a bunch of the old guys, which is... I mean, a few years ago, it used to be... I mean, look, last year, at least they got Naito, you know? Yeah. And the, year, the years before that, they used to get everybody. They used to get Okada, you know, Nakamura when he was there, you know, Tanahashi. And now they get, like... Last year, they got one star. This year, I mean, you could argue they got no stars, and... And and these guys take like Evil and Sonata, who are, you know, at least on especially Sonata this year. I'm like, like on the cusp of being a main eventer. I watched like a couple of matches. They slept walk through those matches. Yeah, so, and they basically and they basically use that toward sort of build up Evil and Sonata for a title shot against God at Dominion. Yeah. So they 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 use that to build a program for one of their shows. And then of course, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, the NWA is clearly. Uh, u- using ROH to do their own angles, and I don't know if they're going to be like what their future is, and when they're going to be at the point where they can run more of, I guess, their own shows more regularly. Uh, but yeah, no, I think going forward, ROH needs to really uh, focus on getting smaller buildings that won't make them look really bad on TV. Um, and and yeah, I guess, and as far as the, like the promotion, like we said, uh, AEW and New Japan are clearly ahead of them. Um, 
MLW is about to draw twenty one hundred in Chicago. Yeah, I mean, yeah, again. they do. They do very well in Chicago, and I'm and I'm not really sure how well they do, you know, elsewhere outside of Chicago. I'm not sure if it's just that market that they do really well in. Um, I mean, I know they run the Melrose Ballroom, but that's a very small building. Um, it'll be interesting to see how well Impact does in the in the Odium because they're running that Odium building that ROH has been using. So. It'll be interesting to see how well they draw for that show. I mean, they're sort of at really like that level right now. They're at the sort of impact MLW um, level right now. And I mean, it's like, how well, they draw. You could argue that they're, you know, doing better than ROH because at least those promotions are running buildings that are appropriate sizes and it makes it look better on TV. Yeah. I mean, the, the landscape to me looks like right now in America is like WWE. There's a gap. AEW. There's a gap. New Japan. There's a gap. A big, maybe a bigger gap than the other three. And then Ring of Honor, Impact, MLW. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's where Ring of Honor's place is. And it's a that is a stunning fall for a promotion that like, you know, maybe stunning is the wrong word because once the elite guys left, it just kind of looked. No, yeah, stunning is the wrong word. It's more like a a a very obvious fall. Because for the past few years, they've papered over their cracks with New Japan and with the Elite. And, you know, I think people people have screamed about it for years and years. Like, you know, you guys have to do something to plan for the future and do something that isn't just relying on, you know, the first of all, this group that clearly is using you as like your play a playground and isn't getting anyone else over really. And they were and, bigger and they were, the elite were much bigger than ROH. Yeah. That, like that became, they became the show for so many people. And it's like, well, this clearly isn't good because if they leave, you're, you're going to have nothing. And, you know, at the same time using new Japan to draw at all these places. I mean, the, the one, the one that sticks out to me the most will always be, because I, I was there for it too at that, either Global Wars or War of the Worlds, who cares which one it was, in 2017, where they actually, it's a Ring of Honor show with New Japan, and they let New Japan bring out the U.S. title on their fucking pay-per-view, because I think this was a pay-per-view, and say, here's our new belt, we're coming to America for two shows for a tournament for this title, and Ring of Honor's just like, oh, you're coming to our country to put on uh, you know, your own shows without us, and you want to let us plug them on our show? Sure. Go ahead. What could be wrong? What could go wrong here with using our pay-per-view broadcast to plug your own American shows? I mean, like that. What do you think about that? That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that is insane to let another company. Why don't you just let WWE plug the fucking shows on your? Like you're getting. What are you getting out of this? Like, yes, you're getting, um, you know, short-term attendance boost, but you're you're basically like letting another company, you know, build their own American fan base at your expense. So that's, yeah. I mean, that is insane. Yeah and, yeah, and then, to again, just to a much smaller extent, the same thing is happening with the NWA right now. I mean, they are, I mean, you had, like, I just find it hilarious that they have Eli Drake come out and say, oh, you know, I've been, like, getting all these offers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> down, and I signed with the NWA. Not oh, did he say? It signed with like the best pro wrestling company in the world, or something. Yes, I and think they said the NWA on a yeah. Royal Water show, and this yeah. is not, like a, and this is not like a scenario like he's hyping up a fake stable in Ring of Honor. He is hyping up legitimately a different promotion. Yes, I mean, look, they, they Ring of Honor has a tagline: "We're the 
best wrestling on the planet, which always looked fucking absurd to me the last few years, but looked more and more absurd. And now it's like, you don't even believe that enough on your own broadcast to force everybody to put that over. You have some wrestlers putting over the NWA. You have New Japan guys here who clearly, like, is there, and there's not even anyone watching who views Ring of Honor on a higher level than New Japan at this point. And I'm like, like, you have, but this tagline almost feels like a self-parody now. It's like you're mocking yourselves. We're the best wrestling on the planet. And, anyway, and, here's and, the, fact, and the fact that they have arguably the worst women's division in the United States oh, yeah. automatically even, qualifies them from using that statement. Really. <laughs> we didn't even mention that either. The women's division, which is, like you said, not even the worst women's division in the United States. One of the worst women's divisions or any division of any kind of, of all time. In pro wrestling history, like I can't think of a worse. Like what is worse, you know? Even those WWE like cruiserweight divisions of the past and light heavyweight divisions that were terrible were better than this fucking women's division. Is it is is the Ring of Honor women's division better or worse than the twenty four seven division? What do you say? I don't know. Probably probably worse. <laughs> probably worse. Yeah, I guess because at least you got like our truth and Drake Maverick yeah. making it entertaining. But but yeah, and then I we think- did. Oh, sorry, keep going. Oh, no, go go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say the last factor we have not mentioned, which I, I want to bring up before we move on, is the MSG show, I think, um, expedited this, you know? Like, I think yeah. it basically, like, maybe they, if, if that, if the Ring of Honor half of the MSG show wasn't so, like, universally panned and just, like, really bad, I think you would be talking about maybe, I don't know, like, a thousand fans in Hammerstein or something. A thousand tickets in Hammerstein sold instead of like four hundred. Like I think they were going to go down regardless, but I think like you had you were you were lucky enough to have this giant platform uh, in a sold out Madison Square Garden, pretty much with like completely undeservingly, just because people wanted to see New Japan and people wanted to see the Elite when tickets went on sale. I thought they were going to be there, so you get this totally undeserved platform to put on your best possible show. And you gave the people Madison Square Taven. You gave the people the allure. You gave them Bully Ray and a fucking nerdcore rapper. I mean, pretty much anything they could do wrong on that show, they did. Oh, you gave the people Enzo and Cass, who you didn't even bring back ever again. And who rumor has it greatly pissed off your most important partner. So, like, anything they could do wrong on that show, they did. And, you know, I think it just, you only get so many chances to make an impression on people, right. you know, when there's so right. many options out there and you had this captive audience that is maybe never not going to watch a Ring of Honor show normally. And this is your one chance to be like, okay, here's why you should pay attention to Ring of Honor in 2019. You know, we have these people and these guys and these women. And what you showed them was utter garbage and what came? What people came out of that show front with was basically, um, I don't have to pay attention to Ring of Honor. It's gone. It doesn't matter. It's you know, it's completely off the radar. You know, New Japan looks great. I don't got to f- pay any attention to Ring of Honor. When I went to that show with a, you know, I told the story on the podcast already. I went to the show with a first time a friend of mine who had never been to a wrestling show before, and his big takeaway was, you know, it doesn't really follow wrestling. And his big takeaway was, you know, New Japan looked cool. But that Ring of Honor shit was terrible. And when I asked if we want to see New Japan again in late September, you can probably guess what his first question was, Sean. 
His question was, is Ring of Honor going yeah. mm-hmm. to be on the show? And I was like, they are not. They're going to be in Las Vegas that weekend, actually. And my friend said, great, I'll probably go then. So yeah. That Ring of Honor is not just – they are an anti-draw, basically. If I had said yes, he probably would have said, I don't want to go then. So. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's no doubt that that MSG show definitely uh, damaged the – uh, reputation of Ring of Honor, and even though sort of, I I'm sort of share similar thoughts with Joe Lanes on this, where I think I thought, you know, aside from the women's match itself, I didn't think the so the rest like I guess the two matches because the Rush Dalton Castle thing wasn't really a match, but I I didn't think that those matches were necessarily bad, but I do agree that like sort of the optics and sort of like the booking decisions, like sort of like best in the world, like the wrestling was not bad but sort of the optics and the booking decisions were what made it, you know, come off as like really bad. Like that just, yeah. did, that just, you know, made it worse. But I think that I really do believe that show cratered, like, you know, you, that basically made it crater more. That's what I think. Especially yeah. when you look at like, you know, most of those tickets in that, that we talked about, like the, which I just realized I didn't give him credit because the observer gave, I took it from the observer, but it was actually a lobby, Margolin, I'm sorry yeah. if I pronounced it wrong, mm-hmm. but name wrong, but that's his stats. So I'm sure he, he, he does a great job with the ROH attendance yeah. figures, and you should definitely go follow him on Twitter. He's a great job with that stuff. So his Twitter, I mean, sorry, his uh, the attendance numbers he gave us, you know, the 835 per show over 23 shows. I mean, some of that is before MSG, and even the shows that are after MSG. I mean, you a lot of people buy their tickets well in advance. Yes. So a ton of those tickets were bought before MSG. Right. Now, when we're talking about these shows coming up, we're talking about shows that you're almost all of them are being bought after MSG, and that's why I think you can see another decline, you know, from like that 800 level to what looks like they'll be lucky to have 500 for a lot of these shows, mm-hmm. and that I think is where we're talking. Like, okay, this is like a big fucking problem now, and I think that is that is the effect. That to me is the MSG effect. That's I think. You know, you've lost a few hundred more fans per show because, you know, people are just embarrassed embarrassed to be watching this. Right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It seems like the MSG thing definitely, you know, that was the, the elite leaving was the first drop off. And then this, the, the results of the MSG show on the Ring of Honor side are definitely that um, second drop off, I guess you could say. And then I, I guess just to go back quickly to the, to the New Japan relationship, um, I guess it'll be interesting to see what happens if they do break up with Ring of Honor because I don't. I know there are some people who really want the AEW thing to happen, but I think as long as they're with Triple A, I I just can't see that happening. So maybe it's just sort of going to be sort of thing where New Japan. I mean, because technically, if you want to look at it, AEW and New Japan are competitors in the United States now. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's just a thing where. If, if the relationship does end down the line, they will just sort of not do anything with AEW and they'll just be, you know, just do their own thing. I mean, look, the problem with the AEW New Japan thing for people who want it, and I don't even necessarily disagree with people who, like, want to see, you know, these Kenny matches or whatever. And, I, you know, that, that's another discussion we can have when we get to AEW because I do want to make some points on Kenny. But the problem is that New Japan doesn't need Kenny in Japan. Like that's become very clear this year that like their their attendance is actually up in Japan this year without you know for the most part without without the Kenny without the elite so you know they those that's not a good enough 
reason for them to want to come to the table. And supposedly what, what people are saying, you know, when people are talking about the uh, Meltzer's talked about this, but like the AW people not being on the MSG, a triple A MSG show is AW's whole thing is we're not going to let our guys work uh, sh- other shows in America. You know, they didn't let Moxley work the new, the Dow show. You know, they're not letting their guys work that triple A MSG show, even though triple A's like a partner. So if AEW's whole thing, basically, if they're coming to the table with, you know, we can offer you guys for Japan, but we don't want to have our AEW guys on New Japan shows in America, like, that's not a great offer, you know, to get New no. Japan to the table because they don't need the AEW guys in Japan. The value of the AEW guys is having Kenny Omega to draw in America. I mean, that's what it is. And you can see yeah. the drop-off without Kenny in America. That's where there's been a clear drop-off. Mm-hmm. So if you're not gonna, if AEW is not gonna come to the table with, you know, we'll let you have a certain number of Kenny dates in America or the Young Bucks or Cody or whatever, then I don't see what the draw, what like I don't see why New Japan would make that deal. It doesn't really make any sense for them to be like, yeah, we'll give you our guys for for America, but you know we can't use like it just doesn't make any sense. They don't need Kenny, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and you could say maybe AEW doesn't need New Japan either. We'll have to see what these weekly shows draw. That would be a good question. But obviously, it, it, all, it all depends on you know what size buildings they run. Like yeah. if they run sort of buildings like they did for this fight for the Fallen show, or the sort of the building they ran for Fighter Fest. Like, I, and I'd be curious. Maybe I can ask you this question right now. Like New Japan's obviously running these buildings that ROH uses, like. Um, like Manhattan Center and the Lowell Auditorium in near Boston. Do you think you know, those are smaller buildings compared to like uh, the building that they AEW ran for Fighter Fest and Fight for the Fallen? But do you think like Hammerstein Ballroom and that Lowell Auditorium, do you think those are too small for AEW to run like a TV no, taping? Not for TV. I think TV, they could do it there. Yeah. I, 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 would rather, I would rather have a small building that's full yeah. and like really loud than, you know, half empty building. So yeah, we'll I see. Would, I would agree. Yeah, I think those are buildings that they could definitely run TV. And because so I, I, I think you should start small with your TV just to see what you can draw and what the demand is. Because you know it's one thing to draw for these like semi regular shows and for like your big pay per views, but I, I still question what they can draw on like a weekly basis in on like a Wednesday night. I agree. So let's let's go back then to uh, what we were just talking about that with New Japan, where I just I don't see any. Like, I don't see, like, the, the point of that. I think for the AEW side, you know, and we're going to talk about it's be a good transition to fight for the Fallen. I think that roster is a lot thinner than people give it credit for, especially when it comes to, like, male singles wrestlers. So I do think, like, a New Japan deal would really be, a, a like, a, a shot in the arm for them, especially when they, they need to count these weekly TV matches every week. But, you know, that's also, like, I, I'm, you know, there are a lot of people in the AEW roster that that audience seems to like that I don't care for at all. So maybe they don't need anything, but like what really like has, you know, been driven home for me this last couple of shows is how much I don't really care for a lot of the AW roster. So I guess we'll see what happens as far as that goes, but wrapping up ring of honor, I guess um, they are running next week at the Hammerstein ballroom. Uh, are you going to go Sean? Are you going to, no, probably not. I mean, it, I, I spent $80 on a ticket and I'm probably not getting that money back. <laughs> they've, they've announced Matt Taven versus Jay Lethal for the Ring Runner title. Uh, G.O.D. defending the titles against the Briscoes. Dragon Lee against Jonathan Gresham, the only match I would be interested in, really. And Marty Scroll, Brody King, PCO, and Flip Gordon against Mark Haskins, Bandito, Tracy Williams, and PJ Black. I mean, 
you get that card, it's not really that it's not really that difficult to understand why they're not drawing. But I mean, some of those matches I would like to see, but I at this point I don't know if that's something I would pay eighty dollars to go see. Yeah, I mean they they haven't dropped these ticket prices at all. I know Taylor, who also lives in New York City, was talking a lot in the Slack like that he would go if they dropped the ticket prices, but it doesn't it doesn't look like they're going to do that. Just try to get more people in the building, so maybe they don't want to set the precedent or something. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, like I, I mean, I've like I live in the city, and I have really didn't even consider going. So unless they if they drop the tickets to like twenty bucks or something, I would like maybe consider it, but not for like eighty dollars. So I guess that's a wrap on Ring of Honor. We talked about that for a while, so let's transition over to uh, AEW Fight for the Fallen. We'll save the G1 for last since it'll be the thing we're most positive on, I'm sure. Uh, Fight for the Fallen, I we'll, won't go into a ton of depth on this since we spent so much time on Honor. I didn't really care for the show. Uh, there was one match on the show that I really liked, and it might surprise some people what match it was, which we get to that. I do want to talk a little bit about that. But like, um, as far as the rest of the show goes, I thought it was a lot of pretty bad stuff. Uh, a couple matches that were like pretty good, nothing that blew me away. I don't know. What do you think about the fight for the fallen? So I, like I said at the top, I literally just got done watching, or I maybe when we were off air, not sure, but I, I literally just got done watching that show um, right before we started recording. Um, it was a very busy weekend for me because there's also a lot of like, racing stuff going on. Um, but I, I, I'm a little more positive on the show than you are, uh, which I guess isn't much of a surprise. Um, I, you know, there was a lot of stuff on the show I liked, but then there was also a lot of stuff on the show that wasn't too good. Um, but I would, if, if I think it seems like the general consensus is that this is of the three shows that AEW has put on so far, this is probably the worst of the three. I I don't even probably. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely that that's the consensus. And I I would definitely agree with that. It seems like this show again i liked it a little more than you did but definitely the worst of the three uh they've done so far i mean we didn't talk about fighter fest on the podcast we did the 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 awards i think that week but i i did watch fighter fest i thought that show was like okay it wasn't anything great it wasn't anything terrible it was just kind of just a show to me uh now it goes double or nothing now and this this one i think was like well below fighter fest um so this all this show also interestingly enough like seems to be like the show that like in a lot of circles seem to have like made people think it's okay to criticize AEW now. Like I saw a lot of comments that were basically like you know it's finally okay to hate on AEW or stuff like that. But I think people were kind of considering like the, the floodgates open now. They put out a show that you know hasn't been nearly as universally acclaimed because I, I will say most people like Spider Vest a lot more than I did. I thought that show was fine. I just didn't think it was anything special. Yeah, but, I, I really liked Fighter Fest, and again, I, I would say that this show was was good, but it was de- again, it's definitely below Fighter Fest. Uh, Peter Avalon versus Sony Kiss was the opener on the pre-show. Only went about five minutes. Uh, you know, and I don't really feel any reason to yell about the librarian shit. It's really stupid, but it's just it's only been on pre-shows anyway, and it's it's a stupid being the elite thing. I mean, whatever. Yeah, I, I guess the best thing you could say is that this appearance by them was sort of their least offensive appearance yet, which I guess isn't a very high bar, but you know, Peter Avalon, you know, he's a perfectly fine sort of prelim guy and Sonny kiss, you know, it's good to see him get a win. So, yeah, his entrance was cool. The match was pretty terrible. I think about like one and a quarter. 
uh, the Joshi tag, or the women's tag, against Britt Baker and Riho and Shoko Nakajima and B. Priestley. All right. Uh, let's see. Let me just put this out there. Britt Baker is not a very good pro wrestler. I know she got a concussion during this match, which, you know, I'm sure made her even worse, but she was not good even before the concussion. And I believe, and, and I believe um, if I remember correctly from what I heard, it was, it was like very early on in the match. And I think it was literally a B Priestley's first spot in the match. She came in and she kicked her in the back of the head, if yeah. I recall correctly. And that, that was the spot that concussed her. So very, um, very early on, she was out of it. Riho is awesome, though. So basically, this was a really difficult match to rate because Riho, when Riho was in there, it was great. I mean, B Priestley looked great, I have to say. I mean, I'm not always a big fan of her in stardom, but she... Seeing her in this context, like in stardom, she's like pretty average, but the stardom roster is awesome. Here, I mean, she looks like the best fucking women's wrestler on the fucking roster, basically. Um, especially like as far as like the, the non-Joshi. I mean, she looks better than almost everybody else on the roster. And Shoko Nakajima, you know, she looked a little out of sorts a couple of times because she's probably not used to working against non-Tokyo Joshi people. But I thought she got her bearings and was fine by the end of it. Um, Riho is awesome. I mean, she's looked awesome in every single AEW show, and she always is awesome. Um, yeah. But yeah, this went like 15 and a half minutes. When Riho was in there, it was great. When Britt was in there, it was terrible, especially after she got concussed. So I like split the difference and called it like two and three quarters. But like, just they need to have some, first of all, have some more fucking singles matches with the women not involving Brandy Rhodes. And like, <laughs> and, and like push, this is like the, the beginning of like, it feels like the people getting the biggest pushes are the worst people on the roster. And Britt Baker is another one where she looks like she's being set up to be the ace of the women's division. And like, she's not very good. Like they have way better wrestlers. Push B Priestley, push the Joshi. I don't know. Push anybody, but Britt Baker, because she looks pretty terrible. Yeah. I mean, I, it's understandable why they want to push her and I'll always have a sort of a sliver of support for her. Cause she and me went to the same college both uh, Penn State alumni, but yeah, I, I've honestly, I've never really been that impressed by her at all. I mean, she, she's okay, but um, you know, I, she doesn't really do much for me though. Again, I, I understand why they're trying to push her pretty hard. Um, I, I gave this match the gentlemen's three. I mean, I, I thought it was, I saw a lot of people in the voices of wrestling slack really hating on this match. And then I watched it, you know, the day later, yeah. the day after. And I, I, didn't aside from Britt Baker being concussed, I didn't see anything really wrong with it. Um, I this is actually my first time seeing B Priestley in a match because I I just don't have time to watch Stardom, even though I would like to watch Stardom. And I I thought she looked really good, like you said. She at least to me she came off really like a I don't know if, uh, like a superstar, but she came off like the the biggest person in the match, if you know what I mean. Yeah, she came off like somebody who actually looked like she knew what the fuck she was doing. Yes. There's more than you could say for Britt Baker. Yeah. And, <laughs> so. and I guess and I guess as far as Riho goes, we know she's on that, you know, five match deal and this was that third match. So it'll be interesting to see sort of uh well, no, I think she is staying now because she did a she did a goodbye match in uh okay. so I think she has decided to stay in a Yeah. And I guess the only other thing I would ask, and because you would know more about this than me. Is is there because we had you know B Priestley was a Stardom champion and Shoko Nakajima was a Tokyo Joshi Pro champion. So, it, it what what is there since I'm a novice a little bit 
towards Josie. I mean, I know about know enough about it, but not you know, I don't watch it. Yeah, asking if there's a relationship between the two promotions. Well, well, not a relationship, but I guess how often do they interact? Do they never. interact at all? So no, this, is, never, this is a pretty rare. Never, this is a pretty yeah. rare thing. Yeah, they never interact. Okay. It's not like there's. I don't know if there's heat. I don't think there's like heat there or anything. But I can't remember them ever like interacting. So. Yeah. So I guess it was probably the smart decision to put them on the same it's, team. Stardom, Stardom is basically like an, a very isolationist promotion when it comes to Joshi. Like a lot of the Joshi companies work together, and Stardom very rarely does anything. I mean, like they have Mako, Satomura from Sendai Girls. Uh, you know, they had a couple like little Sendai Girls crossovers, but that's really it. So, okay. And I think there might be heat there now too because they, they stole uh, Cassandra Miyagi or Cassandra Miyagi jumped. So, mm. uh, okay. So that's the pre show, which. Uh, because that women's tag wasn't like off or anything, and I, I agree that the, the the stuff I saw around it was way worse than what it actually ended up being. But because that wasn't that bad, this is probably the best pre-show of the three. Uh, even though I didn't really care for the other match, but then we have the the six man tag that opened the, the main show: uh, MJF, Sammy Guevara, and Sean Spears beating Darby Allen, Jimmy Havoc, and Joey Janela. Uh, Spears put away Allen in the Defy Driver in about thirteen and a half minutes. Um, so this, I like this quite a bit. It was very spotty, but most of it landed and it was pretty exciting. You know, I went like three and a half on it, but again, this began or continued a trend where the least interesting, least, you know, like the, probably the guy who I think at least has the least like long-term star potential in Sean Spears pins the guy who probably has the most long-term star potential in Darby Allen. I know they're pushing Sean Spears for the feud with Cody, um, I just don't. I don't see any fucking p- big long-term potential in Ten Guy. Uh, you know, the crowd did react to him because he had the chair angle. I just don't see that like being a real thing long-term. I think he's going to lose to Cody or do the Cody feud, and then that. Like, what else is there going to be for fucking Ten Guy after that? Um, you know, whereas you know Darby Allen has like long-term potential. Sammy Guevara does as much as I don't like him personally. MJF does. It just feels like they're pushing really, really weird. And I would say wrong people so far. Like the biggest issue I have at AEW so far, you know, beyond too many multi-way matches and too many multi-man matches and all that stuff, is I really think the booking is very it's been very bad up to this point. And there's more stuff we're gonna talk about later. And you know, I think this again, the, the choices and who they're pushing have been really terrible. Yeah, so I uh gave this match the same rating as you did. I went three and a half on it. Uh, I thought it was a pretty good uh opener i didn't have as much of a problem with the finish because i think like a lot of people say darby allen is better at a loser like he's better off losing more than he wins sort of that you know because that's what made him work really well and evolve is that he just lost and lost and lost um so that finish didn't necessarily bother me and i'm not i guess i'm not too worried about the sean spears thing because it just seems like they're building to this match with Cody, probably at all out. Cody will probably beat him, and then Spears will go like back to the mid card and do whatever he's doing. Um, I, I guess one thing that I really did like about this match is that they sort of teased the dissension between MJF and Sean Spears, but they didn't really sort of uh, do, pull a WWE and like bash you over the head with the idea that they weren't getting along. Um, like I really like the idea that you know, not all heels have to get along. Like MGF, he is a, like a like the heeliest heel that's ever healed. 
Um, but you know, he even even he was like sort of as he saw the angle at Fighter Fest, he was sort of you know, he, he came to Cody's aid and he was disgusted by what um Sean Spears did. So I, I, I do like the fact that they have that little shades of gray in there where it's like not sort of like eighties, you know, WWE where all the baby faces are friends and all the heels are friends. Yeah. Just make things a little more I guess interesting. So I, I think they did a good job at that. Um though I wonder if that's gonna lead to a MGF Sean Spears feud, which I don't think would be very entertaining in ring wise. Um but no, yeah, I, I thought this was a good opener and I think Sammy Guevara was probably the standout, I guess you could say. Seemed like he was the standout. He'd had a lot of big spots in there. So yeah, no, as far as the match goes, I thought it was pretty good. Uh not pretty good on the other hand, Ali versus Brandy Rhodes. First of all, fucking they piped this up with Brandy, like talking, you know, doing these tearful promos about how she wants to prove herself, prove she could do it. And then she brings out Awesome Kong to be her fucking heel backup and fucking cheats to win. Like, isn't that like WWE bullshit? That's so fucking stupid. What's weird is that when they first sort of started teasing this match, it seemed like that they were going in that direction originally where like Brandy was talking about, oh, you know, I don't like the fact that you didn't help me in TNA and all that sort of stuff. And then they switched to the sort of what they what they were building with Brandy before, like into the show where she was like, you know, they were trying to make her as a good guy and then they went back. So it's not like they started her as a good guy and then, you know, turned her back. So if they, they had already sort of teased uh, Brandy as the heel in this thing with Allie and then they sort of tried to make her face and then made her heel again. So yeah. that was really weird. Um, I, I'm probably going to be the only person who says this, but I actually... But I no, I, I gave this match like a star and a half. It was not very good, but I did have it very, very slightly over the Alley um, Leva Bates match from Fighter Fest. Um, I mean, both matches were pretty bad, so we're, you know, arguing over star ratings. But um, I, I, I guess if, if we're just choosing which one's the worst, I would say the Leva Bates match was the worst because um, you know we're talking about two very bad wrestlers with Leva Bates and Alley. And or not really Ally, but Lady Bates and Brandy Rhodes. Um, and yeah, again, this match was bad, though I would say I would slightly just put this ahead of the Lady Bates match from the last show. But that that's the only that's the only positive thing you can say about it. It was it was slightly better than the Lady Bates match, and that's not clearing a high bar. Fucking sucked. It made no sense. So there yeah. you go. Afterwards, we got the Kong Kong stare down. So I guess that'll be it all out. Aja Kong came out. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, do you think we're going to get a singles match? Or do you, is it, do you think we're going to be, it's going to be like Ali oh, and Aja Kong? Knowing how, this, knowing how this promotion's been so far, probably a fucking tag. So uh, the Dark Order, Jack Evans and, Hel- and Helico, I guess. And, and Helico. And Helico, whatever. Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus. Um, again, this was... Another match that was I liked a lot. I thought it was a very good match. I went with, uh, you know, I think I gave this three and a half. I don't have it written down for some reason. But, yeah, I gave this about like a three and a half star rating. I thought it was a really fun, exciting spot fest. Most of it landed. But the Dark Order <laughs> is fucking stupid. And I, I just don't know how anyone can take two fucking guys, one who looks like an insurance salesman, and the other one's a fat guy in a mask, with a bunch of fucking 
you know, for apparently now they, uh, one of the all time great bad commentary lines, I, don't, I think it was Alex Marvez, one of them was like, someone's like, oh, they have the minions. And he was like, they prefer to be called creepers. They prefer to be called creepers. <laughs> Did he fucking ask them? Did he go up to these little masters and be like, excuse me, what is your preferred name? It would, what is like, species? it would be like going up to the Undertaker's druids and asking <laughs> what they prefer to be called. It's so stupid. And this is not supposed to be silly. This is not supposed to be comedy. The Dark Order won this match and are going to a match with the best friends for a fucking bye in the AEW Tag Title Tournament. They are supposed to be taken seriously as fucking heels, as a heel tag team. And it's garbage. I mean, look, they were like, again... The least over, least interesting act in this fucking match, the Dark Order, pinned the most over and the most interesting act in Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus, and which is, again, that's ridiculous too, but at least they're leaning into it, and it's silly. I mean, they're called, like, a boy and his dinosaur is a tag team name. Like, that's supposed to be silly. You're supposed to laugh and like it and enjoy it. The Dark Order, I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to think. I just see a fucking insurance salesman and a fat friend with a bunch of these masked creepers and apparently i'm supposed to take them seriously as heels just so fucking stupid but yes the match is good I like yeah now that. now so so obviously you know we know that the dark order was was formerly the super smash brothers uh now now i guess sort of just just for my sake just to clarify so do you what do you think just outside of the gimmick and all the ridiculousness what do you think of the, the Dark Order, the Super Smash Brothers. What I do you mean, think of them as wrestlers? Do you think I like them? I've liked them in the past. I just haven't seen a lot of them since like they left Jakara. Yeah. So. so I think you know, I think more of the issue with well, all some of the stuff that AEW is doing is it more so the, the wrestling as it is sort of the, the framing and sort of the, the setups for everything. The presentation. Um, the presentation yeah. is bad. Of a lot yes. of this shit. Um, cause like, cause like you said, this was a, a very good sort of spot fest match. Um, but there's just sort of things, the framing about it and the setup that's just not working. Like I, I love the super smash brothers and it, you know, it was annoying when they were, you know, excommunicated from the United States cause of the whole, you know, the issues that a lot of Canadian wrestlers, a lot of Canadian indie wrestlers have had with, you know, crossing the border into the United States. And because I, I loved sort of when I first got into PWG, they were sort of like the top, they were the top tag team there. And I was, I loved a lot of their matches and I, I still love them as a tag team. I mean, you just remember last year, I think you watch, I think you watched this show as well. The match they have with the Umbucks and ROH was really good. And they're, they're still a, you know, a very good tag team, but it just seems like the gimmick is sort of very just, yeah, it's, 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 it's a little, it's a little over the top yeah. with, with the whole, uh, the minions thing. Um, no, excuse I, me. They prefer to be called creepers. Creepers, right? Um, I I know. So I guess with the other teams, you know, I know people don't like Helico that much, but um, I love Jack Evans. So any excuse to get more Jack Evans is good by me. Um, and then I, as far as the boy and his dinosaur, I think they've really after that. I know they were just a BTE bit to start, but I think they've really stumbled upon something with this Luchasaurus. Yeah. Uh, boy have, Mike Spears in the Slack was saying they should have called an audible and just had them win the match. And yeah, they fucking sure as hell should have. Yeah. And, and I, I think, I think, like I said, I think the people running this company are smart. 
And I think that they're, after seeing that performance, they are probably making plans to sort of maybe do a sort of a long-term build for them winning the tag titles down the line at some point. Uh, though I, I, I will say, I think everyone agrees on this. I don't know why Marco Stunt was with, was with them. It's not like he was in any of their bits or anything. So I, I think he's really the only thing holding the back right now. Uh, but I think, yeah, they, you can get these guys as a, as a really, they, they already, you know, they won the crowd over on this match. And it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, Luchasaurus is a guy who was in the WWE system and they just let him go. And now, even though this is like a, you know, on the surface, it's a really ridiculous gimmick, you know, in this match, he got really, really over. And like, you know, like we just said, this, this act could be a really big thing for them. So ho- hopefully, hopefully, you know, they looked at that outing and they're making plans to sort of push them more. So I think, you know, they're getting really popular right now. Yeah. Um, so that's up next. We have Hangman Page against Kip Sabian. Okay. So. Speaking of bad booking, I know. I, disclaimer: First of all, I know the pop, the pock thing happened to them. I know that's not their fault. I know this was not the original plan. But that said, they needed to come up with a better backup plan for the babyface in the first ever world title match at their biggest show ever than what they came up with. You want a really, really terrible battle royal on the first show. You want a pretty crappy four way in the last show. And here he went almost 20 minutes, 1903, with a guy no one has ever heard of, greatly struggled to put away this, like, skinny British wrestler who, you know, no one's ever heard of, Kip Sabian. And at that point, you know, after that, won the match and put him away. That's really, really, really underwhelming three wins to lead up to the biggest show of the year against Chris Jericho for the first world title. And I think is a huge reason why that world title match feels so flat. I mean, this is, he should have beat this guy. When I heard this match was announced, I think he's beaten this guy in five minutes. This was not the time to do a competitive 20 minute match. Just a the complete wrong call, you know, totally bad booking. And the match I thought was, you know, not very good on top of all that. I went like two stars on it. So I don't know what you have thoughts. Um, on I, so these are sort of the kind of matches I struggle with because I think, I think bell to bell, when you look at this match in a vacuum, I thought it was, you know, a perfectly fine match. You know, I went, it, it definitely went a lot longer than it needed to go, but it's not like, no, I didn't, you may think differently, but I didn't think the wrestling itself was, was bad at all. I thought it was a perfectly fine, you know, it was really boring. I, well, I, I thought it was a perfectly fine, like, you know, if you look at it in a vacuum, it was a perfectly fine three and a quarter star match, you know, but I think, Again, sort of like you said, the sort of decision making and that sort of thing behind it was sort of it wasn't the right match layout for the situation. Um, I don't think that Adam Page should have gotten in there and totally squashed Kip Sabian. If it were me, like I would have, like if I was putting this match together, I would have, you know, cut the time in half, make it like 10 minutes. I'd give, I'd make it like a sort of a set, I guess a 70 30 match where you give, Kip Sabian enough spots to where people don't, because I, if you, I mean, he's not going to be a big guy in AEW. I don't think they're going to make him a main event or anything, but I would at least give him enough in the match to make sure that he doesn't come off as a total jobber, even though Paige will beat him decisively. I think that would have been a better way to sort of do that match, but instead they just sort of tease the time limit again. Um, and they sort of made 
page looked not as good. Um, so again, I, I didn't have the match from bell to bell standpoint. I didn't hate, but again, sort of the bigger problem was the booking and how it was laid out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I just didn't like the match at all. Really. I have to say I was more negative on that on the new, uh, and then afterwards, Jericho attacked him. That that angle to me felt way too obvious. It's like, yes, of course, this like very like kind of old pasty, overweight man in the in the friggin' uh, you know, creeper. creeper outfit. Thank you. I almost I almost said, I almost said a fucking minion. It but seems yeah. like the, the masked attack thing is he's sort of done it. It's sort of starting to get. I mean, he's done it so many times, you know. Yeah, but anyway, and then so, I guess, and then I guess he forgot to cut his promo, and then they had him come back out later. Is that what happened? Yeah, I mean, he did come. No, no, no. That that turned out to be a joke by TJ Hawk. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, so so Jericho, you know, he unmasked, and it's like, of course, there was Jericho, and I mean, I don't know. I thought I just thought that ankle was kind of stupid. I mean, he's already come up through a promo. I don't think he really needed that. Kind of made Paige look like an even bigger geek. After he just took twenty minutes to beat this British man, uh, he's getting his ass kicked by Jericho. So uh, then we had Kazarian and Scorpio Sky against Pentagon and Phoenix. Uh, I thought this was, you know, this was f- like whatever. I didn't really hate it. I didn't love it. I thought it was, you know, kind of boring, very average. Went two and a half on it. Don't really have a ton to say about it. Afterwards, we're gonna we find out we're getting Lucha Brothers against the Bucks at All Out in a ladder match. So. There you go. Um, I so I, I guess I like this a lot more than you did. Um, I sort of come from the Joe Lanza school of thought on these kinds of matches. You know, I I like all sorts of matches, but much like Joe Lanza, I like a lot of action in my wrestling, and sort of this is that's what this match gave me. It just gave me a lot of a lot of good, fun, entertaining, like spotty action. I. I don't think I can ever get tired of watching the Lucha Bros. I mean, I know some people are are exhausted of them and they're crying with the Umbucks, but I love those guys. They're I just think they're they're incredible. And you know, I know that some people are upset that we're getting the Umbucks and Lucha Bros again, but it is a lot of match this time. Uh, you can never, as we saw in ROH, you can never really go wrong with a Umbucks ladder match. I mean, it's pretty much a lock that's going to be crazy and it's going to be a fantastic sort of spectacle match. And I'm sure that all four of those guys will go to kill each other in that match. And I don't see why people would hate that. It's going to be a lot of fun. I just think it's, it's some people are a little bit sick of that feud, I think. I did see some negative reaction, like, during. Yeah, but the, match, the matches are always really good, though. I don't I know. know. But how many times do you need to see it, though? I don't know. The ladder match is a new twist, and it does, uh, uh, to be fair, this does seem like the blow-off. I mean, if you're going to do a blow-off with the Unbucks, ladder match is usually usually what they do. So, I don't know. I I think they're going to have a killer match. And I'm honestly, I think it's going to be the match of the show at All Out. I really do. All right, we'll see. So, I can finally be positive here. Kenny Omega and Shima... And this again, this is where people people who follow me for a while may not have expected me to be as positive as I'm gonna be about this match. I mean, I I didn't quite go four stars with it. I only went three and three quarters. But I thought this was really good. You know, it was it had a boring beginning. I didn't like the first 
I don't know, maybe third of the match. And they went 22 and a half minutes, so it went pretty long. But like once Shima started doing from the point he did the Meteora, like uh, off the stage onto that table, everything after that was awesome. I just couldn't see giving it four when, uh, you know, everything up to that I thought was really, really boring. But, and I thought maybe like the, the Meteora spam was a little annoying where it's like he did so many of these fucking Meteoras and Kenny just kicked out of all of them. Um, you know, maybe Shima needs to go back to one of his other many finishers, like the Crossfire or something. But like, you know, so maybe that annoyed me a little bit, but like minor complaints. I still really like the match. And what it crystallized to me watching this match, you know, watching Kenny, um, you know, just like get to tear that, do his like kind of style here. Kenny in New Japan, people who've listened to me for the last couple of years will probably know. Not really my favorite, you know, <laughs> not, not, right. not my favorite wrestler in New Japan, you know, towards the bottom of like, the main event guys for me like definitely maybe the bottom main event guy for me i don't think that's an understatement you know not a guy that i was a huge fan of in new japan kenny and AEW comes off to me at least so much better than the rest of the roster especially when you're talking singles like singles heavyweights i mean or singles wrestlers at all really because they don't really have weight classes i mean kenny comes off like the biggest star the best wrestler yes you know the the guy who like the fans are there to see more than anybody else, and I do not understand why. And if this is not a sentence I ever thought I would say, I don't understand why Kenny Omega is not the first world champion. Okay, at this point, three shows in, I am more convinced than ever that they have totally fucked up the way they booked this world title. Either Jericho or Hangman Page is a vastly inferior choice to be the first world champion. I don't see any argument for either of them being a better first world champion than Kenny. Kenny is the first world champion. Would have been, you know, it would have given you a great ending. You do Kenny, do Kenny versus Moxley at all out for the first world title. Whatever you want to do, or do Kenny versus Page. Do anything. Kenny wins the title. Kenny goes to TV as your champion. He defends the belt in his, you know, his style of match that's very over with the crowds. You know, once or twice a month on TV. You know, really has like an epic title reign that establishes the title. You know, for like eight to ten months, and then have him, if you if the idea is to put over Page, then have him lose to Page, and I think Hangman Page beating first champion Kenny Omega, maybe on like his second or third try even, I think that will get him more over than whatever the plan is right now. Because the plan right now does not look like it's working. And if and that's assuming they're going with Page as champion. If they're going with Jericho as champion, I think that's even worse, because Jericho as champion, you're trying to set your, yourself up to be the alternative WWE your first world champion should not be the ex WWE guy who's pushing fifty. I mean, that should not be a thing. You should go. You should have gone with Kenny. Um, I'm more convinced than ever after this match and after the show that Kenny is just on on another level from the rest of this roster. If Paige wins the title, it's going to feel like he's temporarily holding Kenny's belt, and you know that does set up maybe a big Page Kenny match that Paige can win. But I think no matter what, Cage is going to or Omega is going to feel like he's on a different level from the rest of this roster. And if Jericho wins the belt, it's just fucking. I just think that's not a great idea. For you know, I mean, look, he his matches have not been great lately. That Kenny match is not great. That Okada match is not great. You know, I think the the, the Jericho thing like it peaked for that Naito match at the Dome. It feels like to me. And I just think it's not a great plan to make him your first world champion. I get that he's a big star, but he's also, you know, he's an old guy. And he's out there turning red, you know, cutting these promos like he's drunk. I just don't think he's a great choice for your first world champion. 
So that's where I'm at. Great match. Just below, excellent. And it just made me more convinced than ever that Kenny Omega should have been the first AEW champion. Yeah, I guess you could I guess you could say it's sort of like the sort of uh the impact uh Sammy Callahan comparisons where I think Joe Lanza has made this comparison where Sammy Callahan seems to fit best in impact and and that's the promotion that he's best, you know, suited for. And like you said, it seems like Omega is a great fit for AEW because he feels like the, the biggest star there. Um, as far as the, the match goes, um, I was sort of in line with a lot of the people in the Voices of Wrestling Slack who really liked this match, who went uh, well over four. I also went well over four on this. Uh, I wasn't as bored by the start of the match, and I do agree that the second half was uh, awesome once once you had the table spot. Um yeah, just, just a really cool match to see, you know, first time ever thing between Omega and Shima. Uh, so that part of it was awesome. Um, and I guess as far as the title booking goes, I honestly, I'm probably the only one who, who feels this way, but I feel like, you know, I, I, th- I think your point is, is a very good one with Kenny Omega. But at the same time, as, as far as this Omega, or not Omega, the, the Jericho Page match goes, I'm honestly... Like, I have no sort of, they should do this, they should do that. I would not, I'd be fine if Paige won. Uh, I'd be fine if Jericho won. Um, I'm guessing the plan is that, you know, and, and I, I think part of the issue was with that second Omega Jericho match, they probably wanted to do a third match between the two. And to do that, you had to have Jericho win because Omega won the first one. Um, and and if, if, I, if I had to guess, I'm just just spitballing here. I'm, I'm guessing the plan is that Omega is going to win the title, or Jericho is going to win the title at all out. Omega will win from Jericho at some point down the line because they're they're go- they're going to have a third match. I don't think that's any there's any doubt in that they're going to have a third match, and Omega's probably going to win. And I I'm guessing that Paige will then beat Kenny to win the title because I think they've done a it, it's it's clear that they are. Um, protecting that match and that was obvious you know sort of by the fact that if i guess that the rumors are to be believed uh pock was going to beat adam page at double or nothing before the whole visa yeah. thing happened so i so to go to go back to what you said i jericho could beat page at double or nothing that's fine they didn't need to do that whole rushed world title tournament that i mean they could have just they didn't have i mean not even a tournament two matches and then two semifinals they could just had jericho beat omega because that match was not announced as a World title tournament match originally when they announced it, and right. then done some kind of other tournament. You know, these last two shows could have been fucking tournament matches. Would have been better than a lot of this undercard shit we had. And you still have a Kenny win the title, and then Jericho's like, "Well, motherfucker, I beat you in the main event double or nothing. You know, I get my title shot now, right?" And then you do Kenny Jericho three without Jericho being your first champion, and Kenny retains, and then Kenny drops the belt to Page. I mean, I think that would have been a way better way to do it than the way they, they decided to do it. So I just think the the world title tournament thing feels really rushed. It feels very stupid that the only matches to put like two people in the finals was a, a really bad battle royal and one other match. I mean, why isn't like Cody upset that he didn't get a chance to be the first world champion? Why isn't, I don't know, you know, Moxley or like all these other people on the roster, Dustin or Shima, right? Pretty much anybody, Daniels who wasn't in that battle royal or in Jericho versus, you know, 
Omega. It doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, and I, I, I like many people said, you know, it's obviously the Pac thing sort of screwed stuff up for them, but there was there was a better way to sort of handle Hangman Page than the way they they did. Yeah. Um, I, ju I just think the booking has been bad, and this is another example. And I just would have had – they should have done it differently, and Kenny should have been the first champion. And this this match, being as good as it was, being the only thing on this show that I really enjoyed at that level um, is what really put it over the top for me. So Yeah, but I, I, do, I do think that Kenny, he is going to – whether – regardless of who wins that main event, um, at least me, I – or it – well, if Jericho wins, I think Omega's going to beat him, but I do think that at some point Omega's going to hold that title sooner rather than later. Okay. So, I mean, I do agree, but we'll see. So let's wrap this up here with Young Bucks against Cody and Dustin. Uh, I don't really have a ton to say about this. It went 31 minutes, way too long. I didn't like it. You know, I just thought it was uh, not, a great, not a great match, especially at the end of a very long show already that wasn't very good. And I, I get what they were going for, but you know, I, I hate when they I hate tag team matches when they do two heat two heat segments. I mean that nothing kills my interest faster in a tag match. And when the Briscoes used to do that all the time and back in the day in Ring of Honor, I just I hate two heat segments. Do one heat segment or don't even do one at all. I mean two or more is just like it's just asking way too much, you know, as far as my intention goes. Um but yeah, I mean it, the the end was okay, but I never felt like it hit like a some super hot closing stretch either. So, you know, way too long, not very good. I went about two and a quarter on it. That's my, that's my thoughts. On yeah, that. I I have sort of similar thoughts to this that I had on the Adam Page uh, Kip Sabian match. Um, I'm I'm someone who like if the wrestling itself, like I won't give a rating that low if like the wrestling bell to bell, we're, we're, you know, it, it in a vacuum was not bad. I didn't. I, I thought this was a, and again, sort of like Kenny and Shima. My opinions on this sort of are more in line with most people in the BOW slack, you know, I, I thought this was a, as a whole, it was a good match. I, I think that the time thing, like, like, well, like you said, the style of match they were going for is pretty clear. And I guess as far as the time thing goes, I, I think it would have been a little easier to handle if the other matches on the card weren't as long. I mean, one, one thing that you notice looking at the match times is that, you know, the only match that went sub 10 minutes was the Sunny Kiss Peter Avalon match, and that went five minutes. The next longest match went 11 minutes, and then you had a lot of matches that went like 15 or 13 or 19 minutes. Um, and I, I think this main event would have been a lot, in the length that it went, would have been a lot easier to process if you if it wasn't a long show already and you didn't have a lot of you know longer matches on the card. Like I think if you like went through and like chopped a couple minutes off all of these matches, all the other matches on the card, then it probably would have you know, it, it wouldn't have felt as egregious that they went thirty one minutes. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't, I did not hate the match. I thought it was, I, I thought it was good, but it's not a match that I'm going to really remember. And honestly, after the after I saw the highlights after the match, you know. Was struggling to sort of remember it beyond that. <laughs> it was, pretty, was not that wasn't that great. All right, so let's talk then about. Well, I mean, overall thoughts on the show. We already kind of did that, but I thought the show was like actively bad. The only thing I really liked on it was like a couple spotty tags and Kenny and Shima. If if I wasn't doing this show, I think you know the card didn't look that interesting to me going in. If I wasn't doing this podcast, I probably would have just watched Kenny Shima and been a lot happier because I did enjoy that match. But you know, the rest of the show was. 
not great and featured a lot of booking decisions I think were pretty terrible. So yeah. and then and then I just thought it was good, but it was clearly the worst show that AEW has done so far. So all right, so we'll transition into the G one with the for the first two nights in Japan have happened, nights two and three. So we're going to talk about that briefly here, the Oda City Gymnasium. We'll start out with the Block B opening night on Saturday at Oda City Gym. Uh, attendance of both shows is a positive. And what I was talking about earlier with New Japan not really needing Kenny or the Elite in Japan, um, both of these shows sold out and did, um, you know, at 4,064, I think. I, th- I just tweeted it before. Let me just find it. Yes, 4,074 fans. So that's actually up slightly from last year's first two nights at Oda, which did 3,907 and 3,826. Uh, that's pretty much been New Japan's attendance in Japan all across the board. has been up a little bit, you know, and there really wasn't that much more to go up here since uh, 4,074 seems to be the capacity. And then Hokkaido tomorrow looks like it will uh, also be a sellout of like around 6,500. So... I mean, there's almost there's no seats left as far as I can tell, like on the seat maps and stuff. So business is pretty good so far. We'll see if that continu- that continues throughout the G1. Uh, it begins though with the first G1 match: Juice Robinson and Shingo Takagi. Uh, that was the first Block B match. Juice won in fourteen forty one with the Pulp Friction. This match was fucking awesome. Uh, I yeah. absolutely loved it. It was. It started out a little bit slow for me, but like once it kicked into overdrive, it really kicked into overdrive. And you know, since the boring part was like such a small percentage of the match in this case, they only went under 15 minutes and probably around like I don't know, six minutes in, they really started kicking into overdrive. Like it was so good. Like the last like eight minutes of this was just like among my favorite like eight minute stretches of wrestling all year long. So you know, all the like shingle like dropping them on his head at one point with the with the backdrop suplex, just awesome spot. Uh Shingo countering the pulp friction into the uh god, what the hell is he called that thing? No Shingami. Thank you. I'm I'm not I'm the anti Andrew Rich when it comes to movement <laughs> sometimes. But yeah, the no Shigami. And then, you know, like the, like beheading him with the pumping bomber. And then Juice like fires back with that left hand. It was just such an awesome match. I went four and a quarter on it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, I uh, I also went four and a quarter on this. Uh, I, I feel like some of our ratings for the, these two shows are going to be similar. But uh, yeah, no, I like you said, I thought the match was going along fine for the first you know half, and then the second half got going, and then that, that's when it really kicked in the high gear. High gear. Um, and I obviously I think the big talking point coming out is that Shingo lost to Juice. Um, it's sort of an interesting decision. Um, one thing I did like, and maybe this will, I'll try to explain this the best I can, but it, I was, it was nice to see that Shingo didn't, they didn't push that, you know, Shingo lost because he was a junior. It was like, oh, he's a junior, so he just couldn't handle the heavyweight. It was more just, you know, Shingo, you know, t- was tossing Juice around, but in the end, you know, Juice was just the better man. Like, it wasn't like a, oh, he's a junior heavyweight, so obviously he lost sort of thing. Yeah, a lot of these results were a little surprising to me, and I definitely thought Shingo was going to get the first big one here. But yeah, I see why they get decided to get the juice. Yeah, but but I do like the fact that again, they didn't they didn't treat it as like oh, a junior lost to a heavyweight. Obviously, it was just more of you know Shingo. Like again, he, he tossed mm-hmm. him around, he beat up Juice, but in the end, Juice was just the better guy on that night. Um, yeah, so no, so great start of the tournament to both guys, and again, the, the result was very very surprising. 
Uh, John Moxley and Taishi was the second B block match. Uh, John Moxley won in 736 with the Death Rider, that double MDT. I fucking love this. I'm fully aware I'm probably overrating this at seven and a half minute match, but I gave I went four flat on it. I just thought like for it's 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 awesome having Moxley here and like doing this completely different style than a lot of the other people. Uh, I thought he messed really well with Tai Chi. I love Tai Chi like attacking him in the crowd. So the the match itself, they they rang the bell, but like I guess there was a like a minute or two of brawling before that. So that probably yeah. helped it a little bit for me. And like I don't know. I just thought they really had great chemistry. Like they really felt like they were working really well together. And, you know, like Tai Chi, um, I was really rooting for him to get the win here. And he had some really cool near falls. Like there was a Gato clutch at one point that I really thought they got me on. I thought he might actually pin him, but you know, Moxley looked fired up. Uh, it was just a totally wild brawl. Really enjoyed it. And like, I, I really, I tweeted this, but like, imagine the sentence a year ago of uh, John Moxley slash Dean Ambrose gave Tai Chi a Uranagi through the table in the G1 debut for both men. Like, you just can't even imagine that in your head, you know. A year and then gotten, gotten uh, Miho Abe's face after. Yeah, it's a gotten Miho Abe's face and like blew her a kiss. And I hope Renee Young wasn't watching that, I guess. But yeah, this is awesome. I absolutely love this. And, you know, I lo- everybody knows I love Tai Chi, but. Moxie is, he was not one of my favorites in WWE. I did not really care for him at all, but I'm really loving his New Japan run so far. Yeah, well, I guess before talking about the match, I should also mention that uh, when Moxley made his entrance, he had uh, Shota Umino carrying the U.S. title for him. Yeah, that was awesome. Pretty, pretty funny. People, people love that. Yeah, and I, I, I know the undercards are going to be you know skipped by a lot of people, but I'm making a thing to make sure I watch all of the John Moxley Chota Umino tags just to sort of see how that relationship sort of develops th- throughout the tour. But, you know, obviously I think, like you said, you're the high person on this match. I went like three and a half, but my thoughts are very similar to yours. It's a lot of fun. Uh, short, but but they they did a lot of things in that time. And, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if I would presume this style of match is going to be what Moxley goes to throughout the entire tournament. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, this was a, this is for what this was. This was a lot of fun. Then Toriano and Naito only went 342. Yano won with the roll up. Uh, it, it, it's a stunning result on its face, but when you really think about it, when you think about what was going to happen in the main event with Jay White losing, it makes a lot of sense because you know that 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 it's going to come down B block to Naito and Jay White, and that on that last day, I think pretty pretty much everybody figured that. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense to have Naito get ahead of White immediately. You know, it just it's more like Naito and White should be on equal footing. Maybe even Jay should pull ahead. So Naito enters the final night like two blo- two points back of White and having to win that match to get through. Like, you know, White could get through with a draw, basically, yeah. to add drama. So yeah. I think Naito is going to be behind White for a while, and maybe even, like, I mean, he might lose his next one, too, because it's, it's a rematch with Taichi, and, you know, Taichi might get his win back there. So, you know, Naito could start 0-2, and I hope people don't freak out. I don't think it really means anything, and people have started 0-2 and 1 before. So even as Naito super fan here, I, I didn't see a ton of people freaking out in the timeline or anything. So, you know, I wouldn't worry too much yet. I think it'll be he'll recover and be fine. But, yeah, as far as the match itself goes, uh, you know, Naito doing the Yano spots was very funny. Uh, I really like the the super delay corner drop kick was really funny too. Yeah, and then like all the all the stuff with the the t shirt shenanigans I, was very amusing. There's so, also, you know, I, uh, there was also the red shoes bot where I think Naito went to hit Yana with the uh, 
turnbuckle pad, and then Red Shoes just flies in out of nowhere and snatches that hand. That was great. I mean, look, I gave this three stars, which is like my standard rating of like, this was a Yano match, and I enjoyed it. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, uh, same rating for me. Uh, Gentlemen's three. It was fun for what it was. Um, honestly, again, an, an another result that I don't think a lot of people were expecting. And actually kind of has me curious to see what happens with Naito because when I was doing my pickums and, and just for disclosure, I, I I sort of entered two contests. I did the VOW contest and the post wrestling contest, though with slightly different uh slightly different uh results in each one. But uh my thinking going in was that um I, I feel like that Naito was going to have at least two losses, mainly because you know he is the Intercontinental Champion, and historically, you look back over the last couple of years, and the IC Champion has almost always defended the title on after the G1 on the uh, Destruction Tour and one of those shows, and then in the main event of Power Struggle in November. Those are always like sort of locked in IC title matches every year. So I figured you know uh, Naito was going to. It's going to rack up two losses, um, but but this loss to Yano, you know, I don't think Yano is going to get a title shot. I mean, he beat Kenny Omega last year, and you know, he obviously did not get a shot at the IWGP title after the G1. So after this first night, it kind of has me thinking that maybe we're going to get a situation like last year where the block winners are like going to be like, or or the block winner and contenders at the very end are going to be like at a six-three tie. With a, with a record of six and three. So in, in, in that regard, I'm kind of interested to see who else um, Naito loses to next and spoiler alert for sort of predictions later. I think Naito is going to start this tournament 0 and 2. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then, again, the match is very entertaining, um, but it'll be interesting to see going forward who Naito loses to. Because again, I don't think anyone really expected this to be a loss for him. Uh, match number eight, Tomohiro Ishii and Jeff Cobb. Why don't you start this one out, Sean? Because I'm sure you love this just like I did. Let you talk first here. Yeah. Um, well, Ishii I'm... won in 19... I should just say Ishii won 1833 of the Brain Buster. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm going to start with the only real criticism I had of the match. Um, I thought it was weird that after sort of the heated brawl, that they had both before sort of the, the pull part they had before the match in Dallas and then the brawl afterwards where Jeff Cobb got busted open and that, you know, was a, was a spot that Ishii called on the fly, which is speaks just to how great Ishii is both as an, not only as an in-ring worker, but as a wrestling mind. It, it's sort of after that, it was sort of very odd to see them start with a collar and elbow tie up. It just seemed like I figured they would just go straight at each other and they really didn't do that. Um, but no, I, I thought this match was great. I went four and a half. It was probably my favorite match across these two shows. It was just, you know, two big beefy boys battering each other. And that's, you know, that's the kind of matches you like to see in the G1, especially with somebody like Ishii. You know, some of the, they, they did a couple of these spots in the match, but I really, one, it's not really one spot. I mean, you could do it with a lot of different things, whether in the ring or in the corner. But so the spots were, they will like chop a guy or they will like forearm each other for like a minute straight. I just love those spots. They're so much fun. Um, and yeah, the, these two worked really well together. It's an awesome, just slug fest and beating the shit out of each other. And yeah, I, 
I don't know what much else to say other than it was it was awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was just you know two huge dudes just beating the shit out of each other. Um, there were like a couple spots that really stood out to me, like that delayed pile driver by Cobb. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, when Cobb just like tossed Ishii off him at the count of one when he went for a pin at the Lariat, that was really cool too. I mean, the only nitpick I have is like the closing stretch. The way Ishii just kind of like hit one form and then grabbed him for the brain buster kind of felt like anticlimactic after all that. But right. like that's a that's definitely a nitpick. I still went four and a quarter. Thought it was awesome. It wasn't my favorite match of the two nights, actually. It was uh it was right there, but I, my favorite match of the two nights was uh we'll talk about it later, but it's like probably Tanahashi Kenta. So I mean I thought that was awesome too. But this was still really, really good, you know, awesome match. Now the only thing on the night pretty much I didn't like that much was Hiroki Goto and Jay White. Uh, Goto defeated him in 2106 for the GTR. Um, I don't know. Like it, it wasn't bad, but it was like the least interesting. interested I was in a match all the entire show. It just didn't hold my interest at all. Um, there was like a, a, there was like one, the only thing I, I think was actually bad in the match was there was like a, this like Lariat dodge sequence where they kept running back and forth and dodging Lariats. It went on way too long and like it felt like a roadrunner cartoon by the end um i i actually really like that spot okay well i i didn't like that at all and then like the, the similar you know in a similar notion they finished the reversal sequence i thought felt very convoluted just like a lot of jay white matches feel very convoluted but i did like goto just like finally pulling his fucking hair to break up the switchblade just because it feels like it's about goddamn time someone cheated on this cheater basically so i like that kind of like okay the heel gets his own medicine um, right. Yeah, I, I only went three and a quarter on this. You know, it wasn't terrible. It just didn't blow me away. And especially, I just it couldn't follow Cobb, Ishii, and all the other stuff on this show to me. So, um, I mean, it's, it's a really satisfying moment seeing Goto get the win, though. So that was cool. Yes, that was satisfying. Satisfying to see that Goto was not a geek yet again and yeah. lost the match to Jay White. But um, yeah, I mean, the only stuff that I didn't like was like the Gato interference. Other than that, I. I really enjoyed this match. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it was still only for me, the third best of the five tournament matches on the show, but you know, I, I, there are aspects of it. I really enjoyed, like, even though you didn't like it, I enjoyed the sort of that rope running spot. Um, the sort of, uh, finisher, like countering with the blade runner sort of, for me, evoked memories of those, uh, Carl Anderson G1 matches where he would like go for the the gun stun six million times and it would just keep getting countered. Like I I when I when I first started watching the G1 when like Carl Anderson was in it, I always and like really loved those spots. Um, I thought the finishing sequence was actually very cool. I loved Goto busting out the Shonen Kai. That's one of my one of my favorite moves. Um, it just it just looks really cool and it's even cooler because he doesn't really use it a lot anymore. Um, I actually thought there was a, there was a spot right after that where he did sort of a, and I, I thought this might've been the finish because it looked like a new finisher where he did sort of a, an Ushiguroshi sort of into a GTR. I thought that was the finish. And I was, I was sort of surprised that it was just sort of a, another spot, but it, that looked like a really cool move. Um, but no, yeah, I, I enjoy this. I went for flat though. Again, it's for me, it's still, the only like the third best tournament match on the show um yeah so i i thought that jay white was gonna win like when i first started doing my pickums but then when they did sort of the angle stuff with goto once he came back from his 
you know, excursion thing, or well, not excursion, but a break that he had. Uh, it seemed pretty obvious that he was winning, and you know, I'm glad to see him win. And I'm guessing he's going to be one of these guys who gets in really run and then uh, fades out later on. Uh, but yeah, so overall, though, a really good opening show for the B block. And what it drove home to me after a really good show for the A block too is, you know, the this is like the first year I can remember where the two blocks are relatively balanced. So. I think even if you prefer one over the other, like they're not far apart at all. So this is it's really refreshing to like really be looking forward yeah. to to the both to both blocks, you know, every night of the G one instead of having la, you know, the last couple of years there was one block that was like clearly much weaker than the other. Yeah, that, and, I, and I know like A block is getting a lot of hype from people, but you know, the B block, like you said, it's it's very good in its own right. I mean, so, there's a lot of good wrestlers to the B block this year. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the A block last year where I think there was like a lack of, you know, top tier talent past like Okada and Tanahashi. Whereas this time around, like the B block has, you know, a lot of really cool, exciting wrestlers that I'm, you know, excited to see. So, yeah. Um, and we'll talk about that when we get to the cards, but there's plenty of upcoming matches that look really cool. All right. So let's talk about the next A block show, which is also Old Award Jam. It was from earlier today on Sunday. Uh, the first G1 match was Lance Archer going to 2-0, defeating Bad Luck Folly, who fell to 1-1, and 10-12 with the EBD Claw. Uh, this was like a very solid big man battle. I mean, like, it was a little boring in the middle, but this was still like a lot better than I expected it to be. I went three and a quarter on it. You know, Archer is continuing to show like he's, he's having a great year and getting a probably the best Folly match you know, the best non-Okada Folly match in, like, maybe years. I can't think of a, a, a Folly match that was better than this other than, like, a couple Okada matches. So, good match. Yeah, yeah. I I enjoyed this as well. Uh, it was nice to see Folly. It, it seemed like he was trying a little bit more than usual. I mean, he hit that superplex on Archer, which I, I really like. Uh, liked how the fact that Marty Asami sold the superplex by, like, like bouncing off the mat i think you really that was a really good like little nice touch to put it over is like these two behemoths are gonna break the ring <laughs> sort of thing um yeah no i i thought this was fine um i'm not sure who i had in the pick um but again it's nice to see archer getting sort of a renewed push singles push in new japan um and sort of i'm, I'm after this he's he's four no um so he looks like he's gonna be one of those guys that gets the early sort of early jump early start where he's like towards the top of the block um and now actually after this sort of little bit of a run he's had at least early on i'm I'm curious now maybe he maybe he is one of the guys who could i I know i don't think many people picked him to be okada but given the push he's been getting maybe he could be a guy who could upset him i mean you never know I mean, Okada's going to pick up some losses, and after seeing sort of how, I guess, uh, I guess how uh, they've pushed him so far, Archer could be one of those guys who beats him. But uh, yeah, I was a little concerned when Jado came out because I, I had a feeling that because um, I know Jado came out with Fale during the New Japan Cup, and I felt like his matches coming in were going to be a lot of Jado interference, and we did get some of that here. But I'm just sort of happy that Fale, at least so far, has given us clean finishes. Like, no, like, 
the matches could be sucky, but I would prefer sucky matches that at least have a finish over sucky matches that ended a DQ. Yeah. Uh, up next, Will Ospreay and Sonata. Osprey gets the pin in 17 of six with the Stormbreaker. That puts him at one on one and drops Sonata to one on one as well. Um, so this, this again, was a pretty good match. I went three and three quarters. The issues I have with it basically were they, they did like a super long reversal sequence that was like very ambitious, but they didn't quite pull it off. Uh, Sonata like basically dropped her at one point and the whole thing just looked pretty awkward by the end. Um, they almost made up for it. Like they had a great like counter the skull into the Stormbreaker, which is difficult, but they pulled off absolutely perfectly. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I went three and three quarters, like I said, a really cool closing stretch it made up for like some, some boredom earlier and like general awkwardness and like not hitting all their spots perfectly. Uh, I think it went a little long though. It's 17 minutes. I don't know if they really had the, the content there as it was to fill 17 minutes, but still, still a very good match. Just not quite a four star level. I'm a little surprised Osprey won already. I thought they would make it like a story for him that he'd have to take his lumps against the heavyweights for at least a few matches before he finally got a win, but you got to win in match number two. So there you go. So shows are by now. What? Yeah, I uh, I like this a little more than you did. I think it went four and a quarter, though I know that there were some people on the Slack who liked this match even more than I did. Well, it's um, a match, so poor. I'm, he rolls out of bed and everybody gives four stars now. So. Oh, well, you know, I, 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 went, I went four and a quarter, and I know there were some people in the VOW. I'm, 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 I'm just kidding. It's fine. I went three and three quarters. It's not that far off. No, no, it's not that far off at all. I mean, there were... Uh, one or two sort of clunky moments, like you said, but you know, other than that, I really enjoyed it. Um, I guess it's interesting to see the Osprey got his win so early. Um, I forget who I had Osprey going over in my pick em, but I know I had him at eight points. So I, I personally, I feel like that's where Osprey is going to end up. Um, but I guess we'll see what happens. Again, the match the match is really good. I actually I think across these two nights I gave out a lot of four and a quarters, and this was one of them. So great match, uh, but not something that will probably be remembered, you know, by the end of the tournament. Yeah, I agree. Okada against ZSJ. Okada won in twelve oh one the Rainmaker to go to two and oh. ZSJ gets dropped to O two. Uh again, I was very surprised by the result here. I would have thought Zach was winning this too set up in the title match at Royal Quest, but they decided not to go in that direction. Um, and I was a little surprised by how quick Okada won also. Yeah, uh, that surprised me too. I mean, I did like Zach as like a true heel. He said all this shit about how he's going to be the first person to submit Okada since Nakamura did in, in the G1 2015. And Sage <laughs> just immediately goes for a million flash pins. I thought that was great. But, um, you know, it was... It, there was like a there was one bad botch where they did like a counter out of the tombstone that just I don't even know if that's supposed to be because they botched it so badly. Yeah, that looked pretty bad. But you know, I still thought it was mostly good. I went three and a half. Uh, maybe a little disappointing, but they only went twelve minutes. So what are you gonna do? Yeah, I I honestly I sort of wish they. I mean, I guess they do do matches that short. But I was surprised given who was involved that it went that short. Um, you know, this is typical. You know, Zack Saber Junior affair. I. You know, lots of submissions, like crazy pinfall things, and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think I went four flat on this. I I liked it for what it was. Uh, could have been better if it went a little longer. Um, 
But no, I, I enjoyed this what it was, and I was just surprised that, like you said, it went as, as short as it was. I think it went only like 12 minutes or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think the big story coming out of this show is that, and we'll get to this later, is that you have a lot of prominent people going 0-2 to start things off in the A block, which isn't a, which isn't a surprise, because that's something they tend to do, or they've done a lot in the past. But I guess it's surprising that they've done it with so many... I guess key key guys in the block. Yeah, so we're going to two more coming up there, so we'll get to that in a second. So, uh, Evil beat Kota Ibushi in 1911 with the Evil to go to one and one, dropping Ibushi to 0 and 2. This might have been the biggest upset of the night, honestly. Just did not see that one coming. Um, first of all, I was way higher in this match than a lot of people I saw. Uh, I really loved it. I went four and a quarter on it again. Um, I just thought they had an absolute banger. You know, the ankle stuff is great. You know, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to work on his ankle since it's a legitimate injury. But then Coda still managed to do all this shit on one foot. And, like, he did it while selling the ankle slash I don't even know who was selling. I think he really was just struggling. But right. the fact that he managed to do all this crazy shit on one foot was just amazing. And that almost, like, elevated it for me. And then, like, by the time we got to the closing stretch with, like, a Bushi hitting a Bamaye, you know, hits two Bamaye's and then goes for the... You know, goes for the comic go away, and Evil just like kind of shrugs it off, and you know, fights out of it, and hits Darkness Falls, and then the Evil, very definitive end. But I really love this match, and you know, just thought it was an absolute banger of a match. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, again, you and me are on the same wavelength on this one because I also went four and a quarter on it. Really enjoyed the match a lot. Um, I guess first, first of all, before I talk about sort of the match itself, uh, what do you? I have to get your opinion on this. What do you think of Rocky Romero's call on the evil at the end? Uh, what was the call again? <laughs> oh, no, he, he, he just he just does the everything is evil line, and he, but he like really goes over the top with it. Well, the, the Japanese announcers do the same thing. That's okay. why I was wondering if it was like a different. No, no, I was, no. I was watching. I was watching. I, sometimes I watch the English, and other times I watch the Japanese. I kind of switch back and forth. So yeah. I was watching. I was watching the Japanese in this case, but they they yell that on the Japanese a lot too. So that's yeah. That's where, that's where he's getting that. No, I, I just think that it's it's funny how over the top he does that. Um, but yeah. no, no, I I really like the match. Um, you know it. it you know, obviously, we know that the ankle injury is very legit based on the photos that Coda shared on Twitter. Yeah. But obviously, he, he's fine enough that you know, I'm both in the undercard tag on the previous show and on this show. Evil was you know clearly targeting the injured ankle. So again, it's good to see that you know, if you know, I, I guess if it was more serious, maybe they wouldn't focus on it as much. But the fact that they make it, it's, it's now going to be a focal point in his matches, seemingly. Going forward is, you know, at least a good sign that it's not, it, it's it's hurt, but it's not like super. It's not going to prevent him from having great matches. And I liked the the story sort of they told on commentary, at least on the English side, where, and I wouldn't be surprised if Coda probably views this, as, or, or if this is an actual thing that Coda thinks is that the injury isn't a sort of a setback. It's more of a Coda sees it more as a challenge, sort of okay, I can't use this ankle. How you know? How can I work around it? Like, what are what are good ways I can sort of avoid the ankle and sort of do other things with it? So, I guess it's going to result in him having more, I guess, grounded matches. Um, I mean, he did he did do some high flying in here again, sort of doing a really good job selling that ankle injury. Um, but no, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting going forward to see how other people 
you know, work the match and that, you know, it's, we're going to be getting sort of Kotobushi matches that are not the sort of matches we were expecting with him maybe beforehand. So, uh, but yeah, no result, very surprising, much like some of the other results we saw so far, you know, Kota going on to, though I think obviously he's in the main event at uh, Budokan with Okada. So he's going to be definitely come back to be in contention at the end. Yeah. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about the final match of the A block on this night. Kenta defeating Hiroshi Tanahashi in 18.35 to go to sleep, moves him to 2-0, drops Tanahashi to 0-2. Okay, here's what I'm going to say about Kenta. You need to know what you're getting with Kenta. If you're expecting, if you were expecting 2005 Kenta, you were always going to be disappointed. Um, If you were expecting a physical kick heavy style, which we haven't seen in new Japan really since Shibata went down, you know, other than like maybe Yuji Nagata is like the best example. Like you're getting that. And that I'm, it's an element I'm happy to have in the new Japan main event scene. I feel like it's been missing since Shibata has gone. I feel like that's something that should exist in new Japan. So Kenta fills that void. Now, you know, he's, a, he's very methodical. He's still a bit slow. He's obviously on the smaller side. So I get if it's not everybody's cup of tea and the, the live crowds, you know, are taking a while to warm up to it. They, they didn't make a, a ton of noise points during this match. I think they're going to take a little longer to get into it still. But I thought this was awesome. I mean, I went four and a quarter again. I thought it was my very favorite match of the, the two nights. You know, Tanahashi used to have awesome matches with Shibata. And like, I think this was like another version of that where it's like, you know, the flamboyant Tanahashi against the, the serious kick guy, basically. And like, you know, Kenta is, like, striking him and, like, throwing these slaps. And then it's fun. Tanahashi's obviously amazing at selling, so that really helps. But then it's fun watching him, like, get fired up back and just slap him back. And, like, the the kind of, like, flashy veneer kind of, like, falls off Tanahashi. And he's, like, getting more serious and more into it. That I really liked. Um, and there were, like, a couple really, really cool moments. Like, when Tanahashi, at one point, there's a gif going around of, like, him doing the air guitar. And Kenta just coming up from behind him and just, like, kicking him right in the back of the head. I thought that was such an awesome moment. Um, there was like a sling blade counter, the Busiaku knee kick, the fucking rule that was like a jump out of my seat moment. And then Kenta, like, at one point tried the Shibata sleeper and PK combo, but Tanahashi was like totally ready for it because he's taken that a million times over the years by now. So, but then Kenta like counters it like another knee strike and then gets the PK and then hits to go to sleep. Again, a very definitive win, which I think is important to establish Kenta. I love this. Um, you know, I think this is like an element that was missing from New Japan. I'm really happy to have it back. I think as long as you're not, your expectations are too high with Kenta, I don't see how he's been anything other than really good so far. Uh, so, yes, four and a quarter, just like I went on Kenta Ibushi, and I really love this match. Again, we are <clears throat> on the uh, same wavelength. I also went four and a quarter on both of Kenta's matches so far. Um you know, they did, like you said, they did just a really good job telling that story with, you know, uh, you know, Tanahashi sort of facing sort of the, 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 uh, the kicky guy who likes to beat the shit out of people. Um, I really enjoyed his matches with Shibata, uh, when obviously Shibata was active. And while I don't think, you know, Kenta at this point was as good as Shibata was at that point, uh, the, the styles are there and it, it does mesh really well, um, 
you know, again, like like you said, Kenta's not going to be what he was uh, 2005, 2006, that era. But you know, all he needs to be is just just an ass kicker who kicks people a lot and beats the shit out of them, and that's pretty much what he did for whenever he was off in on a on offense in this match. Uh, just a lot of just great exchanges and nice to see a go to sleep that was a lot better than the one he hit on Kodo Bushi. Uh, this one looked really good. So, yeah, no, great job on them to establish Kenta right out of the gate. Big wins over uh, Ibushi and Tanahashi. So, yeah, as, as far as as far as his booking goes, um, couldn't get off to a better start. And then, like like I said earlier, agree with you pretty much on the match quality aspect of it. So, yeah, no, uh, great way to close the show. And uh, it's very surreal to see Kenta cut a closing show promo on a new Japan show. Yeah, I totally agree. It was a really, really unique moment to see him do a closing promo. Uh, so overall, very good first two nights in Japan, maybe even more excited for what's to come. And we're going to talk a little bit about what's to come. So I'm going to get there's four shows before I'll be back on Omakase next week. There's a show tomorrow in Hokkaido. There's then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all at Corican. So I'm going to read off the G1 matches, Sean, and you can tell me what your most anticipated one for each night is. Uh, first of all, for the Hokkaido B-Block show tomorrow, we have Toriano versus Shingo Takagi, Juice Robinson versus Hiroki Goto, Jeff Cobb versus John Moxley, Tomohiro Ishii against Jay White, and Tetsuya Naito versus Taichi. Um, so I think those top three matches are all very interesting to varying degrees. Um, first time ever meeting, obviously, between Jay White and Nishi in a singles match. So it'll be interesting to see how those two sort of mesh in the ring. Um, Cobb and Moxley is interesting just based on the fact that it is a... Well, I mean, Cobb is, I guess, technically still contracted with Ring of Honor. So it is a uh, ROH contracted wrestler versus an AEW contracted wrestler. So that should be interesting just based on, on that fact alone, just to see you know, who wins, though I think a lot of people are presuming that Moxley will win. And then the main event. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, John. I don't know. I, I think I saw this. I, I could be wrong. I, I searched this. I, I could be wrong. Is, is Taichi, is this sort of his home area? Is he from yes. Taito? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I, I think this is a, a stone-cold lock win for Taichi just based on you know, that fact and the fact that he has not beaten Naito yet. And it just seems the G1 just seems like a perfect spot to give him that, that first big win. And I guess what's interesting to me about Taichi is that to me, like he's not a guy who's going to rack up a lot of points. And I don't think a lot of people in their pickums had him getting a lot of points, but I think he's sort of a guy where you can, he's not going to score a lot of points, but he'll get a couple of big wins to sort of make up for that. Like in my sort of pick, um, you know, I had him only getting six points, but I have him beating Naito Nishi because he's never beaten those guys before. And the G1 seems like a perfect spot to give him those wins. So, you know, even though he won't, he'll probably be towards the bottom of his block. Some of his wins, I think, will make up for that. And this will be one of them, I think. And I think you can pencil this in as a uh, icy title defense for Naito at Destruction. So the town of Ishii. He's from the town called Ishikari, Japan, to go a little more detail, which is why his name is okay. Kaichi Ishikari. It was that's not his real last name. But Ishikari, Japan, it's only about a half hour outside Sapporo. It's like another little city that's like about a fifty thousand 
uh, it looks like. So, right. so he's very close by, about a half hour away. So that's where he's from. So yeah. I'd be surprised if we have some fans there. But yeah, I'm most looking forward to Naito and Taichi for sure. Um, I just want to see them. I, I love their match at the new beginning, more even more than a lot of people did. And they're two of my favorite wrestlers on the planet, maybe, maybe my two favorite wrestlers on the planet. So I'm really excited to see them face off here. Um, hopefully they can tear the house down again. Corrigan, Thursday was the the first of three straight Corrigans, an A-block show. We have Kenta versus Lance Archer, Evil versus Sonata, Okada versus Bad Luck Fale, Tanahashi versus Zack Sabre Jr., and the main event, a rematch from Wrestle Kingdom, Kota Ibushi versus Osprey. So, Sean, what one match are you most excited for here of all these? Um, I guess the match I'm most excited for is probably the main event. Um, those two had a great match in the opener of Wrestle Kingdom, and I have no reason to doubt that they would not have a or I, I have no reason to to doubt that this won't be great because um, it will be. Um, and since Will Osprey won at Wrestle Kingdom, I would guess that Ibushi will win here. Um, especially, I doubt Os- uh, Ibushi is going to go zero three at this point. So even though I think that main event is probably a lock for Ibushi, uh, it still should be a great match. My most anticipated match is Sonata and Evil. I thought they had a really cool match at Corkin two years ago, and I think both guys are better now, so I really want to see what that match ends up looking like. And they're both one-on-ones. I can see it going either way, too, so mm. that's, my, that's my pick. Friday at Corkin, the B-Block Corkin show, we have Shingo Takagi and Taichi, Juice Robinson and Jeff Cobb, Toriano and Jay White, Roki Goto and Tetsuya Naito, and the main event, Tomiho Ishii and John Moxley. What match are you most looking forward to here, Sean? Um, probably in the main event again, uh, just to see how Ishii and Moxley mesh as opponents. Um, I think they could have a really uh, awesome sort of brawly style of match. Um, and yeah, I, I guess that would be the match that I'm looking forward to the most. Uh, anything with Moxley is interesting, just by default. And I think think she is somebody who he could have a great match with uh i'm the most looking forward to shingo and taichi i think <laughs> even though it's a it's two of my favorite wrestlers again but also i think it's two guys who are very very over in corican so i think they're really going to have a, a great match that corican's really going to love so that's my pick a block the final corican night on saturday zach saber jr against bad luck fale roshi tanahashi against lance archer kenta versus evil Kota Ibushi versus Sonata, and the main event of Okada versus Will Ospreay. Sean, I can probably guess your pick here, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be the main event again, right? Um, you know, it, it's interesting that Osprey is main eventing two of the three Korokin shows on this tour. Um, I just think this is a lot about what they, or how they feel about him, and obviously we, we really know what they think of him as far as his future I guess, ceiling in New Japan. Um, I know a lot of people had have you know, said that there's no way uh, Osprey could win this match, but I think he can win this match. And I think, personally, I think his chances of winning go up a little bit more if he does lose to Kota Bushi like we think he will. Um, it's not totally unprecedented. I mean... Prince Devitt did beat Okada in the G1 in 2013 while he was the junior champion. 
So um, Osprey beating Okada here uh, won't, to me, would not be this like super shocking result that comes out of nowhere. I do think that Osprey has a a a a not a strong chance to win, but a good chance to win. I don't know if he will if he will actually win. Um, again, part of my pick was just because I don't see him. I don't see New Japan putting him in two of the three. Cork and Hall main events on the G1 tour and then have him lose both of them. I think he has to win at least one of them. And since I think that he's losing to Ibushi, like I said earlier, I think that at least on my pickums, I went with him here to beat Okada. With Okada and Osprey. Um, I do think, you know, even though I'm not always the biggest Osprey fan, I do think he'll be very motivated to, uh, you know, tear down the house here. Actually, I mean, yeah, I mean he's, in, he's in a big spot. Again, I think it's a, it's says a lot that two of the three Corkin shows he's in the main event and he's in the main event against two of the top stars in the promotion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's the G1 coming up next week. We'll be talking all about it. I might as well just mention that now I'm going to have on Thomas Fishbeck. We're going to talk about not just the four G1 show that I just mentioned, but also the um, all three of, or not all three, uh, the DDT Peter Pan show. We're also going to talk about next week because that's happening tomorrow, which is like just outside the time frame for us to talk about it here. So that we'll be talking next week about all four G1 shows and Peter Pan. So that's next week. All right, Sean, let's wrap it up with some questions here. At RBX2000, what do you make to of AW strategy to seemingly undercut every big woman in the division? First Nyla with Amazing Kong, and now Amazing Kong with Aja. Um. So I, I guess undercutting the different big woman. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, my first thought when Awesome Kong came out, a double or nothing, is that oh, they're going to uh, give her or feed her to Nyla at some point, and I thought that point would be all out. But obviously, that's not what they're doing. They're doing Aja Kong versus Awesome Kong in some form or fashion. Um, but I, I guess it's clear based on Fighter Fest, you know when. Uh, Nyla got pinned by Riho that they and I think the flagship uh, with Rich and Joe mentioned this that maybe they don't think she's she's ready for sort of the big spots yet so I, I don't know maybe that's it I'm not sure um, you know Anja Kong versus Awesome Kong sounds interesting but I you know they're both you know past their prime so I don't know how good or slash bad that might be um, I guess we'll see. Come yeah. all out. I, I think they're going to be on the all out show. I just don't know a whether it's going to be a single or a tag, and then at that point, if it's going to be even, I guess, good or not. Yeah. Uh, he also asked should ROH belt up Rush and Bandito and run Latino markets. I mean, Mike Spears has been again banging this drum in the Slack, and it would probably make a lot of sense. Um, I just don't see them doing it. I mean, MLW has clearly done a better job with that compared to ROH. I mean, I believe a lot of that Chicago, um, that those Chicago crowds they've been getting have been sort of Hispanic market related, especially since they push people like LA park. Um, though I, I, I haven't brought this point up yet, but you also have to remember who owns ROH. Um, you know, they're owned by a conservative, um, you know, a conservative, a very conservative company. So I don't know if they would be big fans of 
you know, Mexicans being pushed in ROH. I don't know. Maybe that's just a wild conspiracy theory. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that, John? I mean, it's, I, some people write it off. I don't, I don't write it off. It's, fucking Sinclair is like a terrible, terrible piece of shit company. So I, mean, I don't know. I don't know how much influence they actually have over the actual booking, but yeah, I mean, probably none, but maybe they're, maybe the people running ROH know what company they work for, you know? Yeah. Maybe they don't want to like, like get their negative, get their attention in a ne- very negative way. So, right. I don't know. I mean, it's a conspiracy theory. Who knows if it's right, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, okay. So let's see. The next question here is from uh, at Rules Goldberg. Given the talent they have, the talent they could potentially get, be realistic, what would you do to write the ship for ROH? That would probably take a lot of time to really go in on. But what I will say is they have to be there. I would say there there is no getting back to the level they were at before the elite left. You know, they, they have to run smaller buildings, like you were saying earlier. I think the only way back is to any to like relevancy is to get really um, deep in on like being talent development again, you know, finding people who are at the early stage of their careers at what they used to be very good at in the game era. And like really like, you know, like focusing on young talent. I haven't seen any indication they're able to do that or they even want to do that. So I have no idea if that's really what they're going to do. But if it was me, that's what I would try to do. I mean, I don't know what else they can do. Is I would focus on young talent. I would run small buildings. I would try to get like a hardcore buzz back. I would like they're, they feel like they're still trying to be the same company they were last year. And they're never going to be that company again. So, you know, I, that's, what I, that's what I would do if I was, if I was in charge. Um, so the first thing that I would do, and I, I'm surprised you, you did not mention this as the immediate first thing, but the first thing I would do is get rid of Bully, Bully Ray, like, immediately. Well, they kind of... Are we sure they haven't yet? No, I mean, he's he was on the last pay-per-view. He showed up, and as far as I know, he's still there and still has influence. Okay, I mean, he hasn't been on a lot of shows lately. And he's not on any... Well, to be fair, ROH hasn't run a lot of shows That's... in the last... He's month, not, is so. he on a, I don't think he's on any cards coming up. I well, yeah. I, I'm not honestly not sure. I mean, he hasn't been on a lot of cards coming up, but he's still. I, I mean, he, he wasn't on the best in the world show, but he still showed up. Okay. So, um, you know, I I, I would get rid of him first, but I, I do agree with you. I would think you know running smaller buildings so that the optics don't look as bad. Um, try to find younger talent on the indie scene, whoever's there. Um, and honestly, I think if the New Japan relationship does fall through, then I would maybe consider maybe partnering up with another, I mean, not another Japanese promotion, but maybe somebody like within the United States, maybe like Impact, like partner with, up with them. I wouldn't, uh, I would say MLW, but it seems like during the round of signings, they pissed them off. So I don't think that would work. So, I mean, if I were me, I would just partner up with Impact and sort of do, you know, because it's it to me, I feel like that those two companies would be a lot better served, you know, and, and this is just, this is just me. I think they would be a lot better served working together than, you know, being apart, especially since they are sort of now with AEW new Japan coming in, they're sort of on that like fourth tier of American promotions right now or yeah. promotions that are either are based in America or run in America. So they're obviously in a weak spot right now. So or at least we compared to everyone else. So I think maybe working together with those guys would help a little bit. Um, 
and then just just push sort of do the opposite of what they're doing now and push the actual people who are talented yeah don't worry about losing people because like keeping people who aren't good is not going to help you anyway so yeah make, um, make at, good booking decisions <laughs> at silent posen says few questions first of all thoughts on lifeblood um I don't really have any strong thoughts on them. Do you, Sean? I mean, you watch more of the TV and stuff, so I don't know. If you, well, I mean, they feel like they, a bunch of guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they the end of last year, started this year, they made two stain bulls out of random guys. One of them has clearly worked out extremely well, and the other one hasn't. I mean, Lifeblood has lost, you know, three of their members, one to injury, uh, one doesn't want to work there anymore in ROH and the third just Tenniel Dashwood just uh left the company. She did not resign and she's a free agent. Um yeah she's nowhere in the Marijuana Women's Division is what the is what you're looking for here. But yeah, I mean now it's just Tracy Williams and Mark Haskins and Bandito. And I thought it was I thought it was really fascinating that at the last pay-per-view they really made Lifeblood look like a bunch of geeks. Uh, where they had the angle where Flip Gordon joined them and then immediately turned on them to join another stable. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I like, I, I'm, I don't have a problem with the idea of Flip Gordon being in Villain Enterprises, but the the way they handled that was just very odd. Um, they're probably gonna lose like some kind of like split up match or something. You just yeah, yeah, perhaps. I mean, but Lifeblood right now is just sort of in this weird spot where it's just like. It's half of what it used to be, which is, you know, and they haven't really won a lot of matches. Um, so it's not really what you want to do when you have new guys that you sign and you don't, who are who are good. I mean, I like both of them, even yeah. though I think one of them will be better in his Chikara gimmick. But, um, yeah, no, it, it's, just, it's just falling apart very quickly. I like, I like, I like the guys involved. To be clear, I like I like Mark Haskins, I like Tracy Williams. I say I really like Bandito, but yeah, it just seems like a really they're in a, a really weird spot right now. And the other question was, who would you replace Delirious with as new head Booker? I don't know. I mean, I'm really not really up on the the hot young booking talent in the American Indies or anything. I would just look for anybody who wants to have like fresh ideas and like wants to push new people and like. Just wants to do anything else than what do- Delirious. I mean, I will keep saying this. I said this for years. Even though the promotion was doing good business, he is one of the worst bookers of all time. And I think this year has really borne that out. Like how how far they've crashed without their when they're once their band aids were ripped off. So I just think he, did, he he didn't do anything particularly interesting with the elite when he had them. He didn't use them to put over new talent. He didn't. He just did not at all prepare for this day, which everybody knew was coming. Everybody with a brain anyway. I mean, if they didn't leave to form AEW, they would have left for WWE or something. So just, I don't know. One of the worst bookers of all time. Basically, who should they replace Delirious with? Almost anybody, and it would be an improvement. Um, so I, I think it's funny that this question came up because I actually, it's funny, uh, about like three years ago, I actually called, an, in, a, in a review I did for one of the Global Wars shows, I actually wrote at the end that it was time for Delirious to be replaced. And this was the show where they did the, uh, the Cole Cabana Jay Lethal match in Chicago that went to no contest when they did the Adam Cole joins the Bullet Club angle where they beat up everyone after the, 
after, or they, 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 the match ended in no contest and they beat everyone up. You know, I, I wrote my, in, in my review at the time that, uh, I think it was time for delirious to move on as Booker, but he's, he's still there. Obviously. I think he's the longest tenure Booker that ring of honors ever had. As far as I'm aware, I think he surpassed Gabe at this point. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Now see, it's, it's weird for me because I started or sort of in the first couple years I was following ROH, you know, I, oddly enough, I think I mentioned this on one of my previous appearances on your show, John, but I sort of, I sort of start or came aware of ring of honor sort of around the same time that you fell out of it. Sort of like around 2009, I think you said like Jerry Lynn winning the title was sort of like your jumping off point for like not paying attention to them as much anymore. Um, but for me, delirious will always sort of be not have a spot in my heart. That's not the right term, but I will forever be in debt to him for getting ROH out of the, the Jim Cornette sort of doldrums that were 2012. So that was not a fun time to be ring of honor fan. And I think delirious did a good job to get them out of that because, and I know that, you know, the numbers they've been doing in Chicago, uh, especially the last show and this upcoming show that they have planned have been bad, but people forget that there was, I mean, now this was, I think right after Cornette left, but it was still sort of in the aftermath of what Cornette was doing, but sort of, I think there was a show in Chicago at the Frontier Field House that I think was after them, they did a pay-per-view in Chicago and then they did a TV taping the next day at the Field House, or both shows were in the Field House. And the TV taping drew like 200 people, which for an ROH show in Chicago is not very good. And even though, like, again, this was right after Cornette left, I more contribute that to Cornette and the damage that he had done in 2012 to sort of put ROH in that position. Um, but I do give Delirious a ton of credit for um, helping ROH get out of that spot. Because, again, like, like I said, as bad as ROH is doing now in Chicago, they were, there was a point where they were doing even worse than that. Um, like I just remember seeing one of those TV episodes from that taping. And I, I kid you not, there was, they had, you know, uh, one side of the ring had no seats. It was just empty black space and it looked horrible. Well, um, they'll be back there pretty soon. Yeah, no, they definitely should be going back to the field house again. Well, not just going back there, but I mean, back to one side being completely empty. Well, I, I, hope, I, I hope they they would set that up a little bit better if they run smaller buildings. But, you know, <laughs> I, I I will forever give Delirious credit for getting ROH out of that spot. But at the same time, there is such a thing as Booker Burnout. And I think it's clear that, you know, and, and there, I think there were points in the last couple of years where it's been sort of up and down, where it's been like, I think there were points in 2016 where it, and like I said, it sort of connects back to that uh, global war show where there were, just, it's, it just seemed like he would, he was burned out and then it would sort of peter back up again, but now it's sort of obviously in a, in not in a very good spot. So yeah, I, I, I think he's, he's overstayed his welcome as Booker at this point. Um, just any fresh mind would probably be positive. So yeah, it's just anybody fresh that has like new ideas that can turn things around is good. Uh, Aaron Wachowski, Jimmy Havoc, why? I don't know. <laughs> Let's move on to the next question. 
Um, I, I know, I know some people have said that Jimmy Havoc, I think Joe Lanza says, has said this, but Jimmy Havoc is a guy that you either get or you don't. And I sort of, even though I, I, I think he's a slightly, I, I, as a wrestler, I think he's fine, but I, I do, I do get, I do get oh, Jimmy Havoc. Terrible. I do, I do get why people like him. Jimmy Havoc looks untrained. I don't, I don't know what you mean by fine. But hey, he, he's either I can name a lot of people that he's better than. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about that. All right, he, yeah, at ASPIR. Why is oh, he, his nickname for Flip is Flop, I guess. Why is Flop wearing a gas mask now? Is it like Ambrose was and he's allergic to fans? I don't know, TJ. Maybe he is allergic to the fans. <laughs> Let's move on at GRR4136. Uh, okay, very long rant about the Lucha Brothers here. How long is it going to take before people turn on the Lucha Brothers? And why didn't they do it so far? They literally have the same match everywhere they wrestle outside of Japan for like the last four years. Young Bucks at least once in a while change their shit. Um, I don't really disagree with you, Dominic. I mean, they do kind of wrestle very similar matches. Um, and I would like to see... I'm a little bit sick of Pentagon. I would like to see uh, Phoenix like go off and be a single instead of doing this forever. Hopefully maybe after the young bucks ladder match is, uh, is over that, you know, people will be more into, I mean, maybe they'll be more into moving Phoenix into a singles kind of program, but yeah, I mean, people like flippy shit. That I guess is your answer. Um, I mean, I, I basically said earlier that that's the kind of match I like. So I, I just don't think people have turned on them because the, the fans like me and sort of other fans that they're appealing to right now, like the Lucha Brothers, or if you're like Joe Lanza and myself, you like matches that give you a lot of action. Yeah. And that's what the Lucha Brothers give you. And I guess, with, you know, Phoenix is obviously very good. And I guess with Pentagon, it's just more of a thing where, and we said the same, people have said the same thing about Marty Skrull, you know, and, you know, it's it's great if you're a wrestler because once, once you get the charisma thing down, you can like really save your body and not have to do as much because you could just get over on your charisma. And uh, even though I still think, you know, Pentagon does have really good matches on his own, you know, he's, he's clearly like a guy like Marty Skrull who, you know, figured out, Hey, I can, he's, he's gotten to the point where he's so charismatic that he doesn't need to go out, go all out on every single match. Cause he knows he can get over just by doing like zero medio. Yeah. I can't even say that. Why, why could I not say that? Zero medio. There we go. Um, yeah, I could just get over doing that and then just doing the glove thing that he does and yeah. all that other stuff. Uh, he also said, also with ROH being so shit, does this make impact MLW number three promotion in the U.S.? I think we kind of covered this already. I think it's probably all three of them in a jump ball. Uh, maybe MLW ahead because they're the only ones drawing like 2,000 plus of the three anywhere in the U.S. So, um, And then at PKs Midwest, how much faith do you have in the long, longevity of Kenny's booking of AEW's women's division? I'm not sure if he means like, will Kenny keep doing it for a while, or if like, you know, Kenny will be able to do it well for a while. But like, so far, I'm not impressed, and I think um, I'm not impressed with the booking of any division in AEW really. But I mean, we didn't even mention this. This made me think of it for some reason. We didn't even mention that fucking clusterfuck three way was another winner gets an opportunity out of buy. For the, uh, from the first round of the tag title tournament that we don't even have a bracket for yet. Um, so whoever gets this by will have won twice to get through the first round where everybody else only has to win once. 
what the fuck? Why does it make any sense? So I think every division has been booked pretty poorly. But the women's division, uh, I don't know. It's really not, I don't have a read on it yet. Maybe Kenny has long-term plans, but I don't really know what they are. So yeah, I probably have less complaints with this than I do with the tag of the singles at this point, honestly. But I guess we'll see, like you're saying. Yeah, I guess we'll see what happens. And I guess as far as the, 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 the tag team thing goes, again, as we mentioned earlier, I, I think it's just more – I think if they just like put out a bracket and sort of made everything more clear, then it would be fine. But it's just the whole framing of the, of the thing. And honestly, I think I mentioned this in the Slack, but I, I feel like this is a Tony Khan thing. I, I think this is something that he would have put together, the whole opportunity for an opportunity thing. Could be wrong, but that's just – I guess it's it's just a the matches are fine. It's just a framing thing and how they're explaining it. All right, so Sean, with that, I guess we'll wrap things up. Go ahead and give me your plugs. Okay, um, you can follow me on Twitter at sacdor two nine nine four. For any G one show that I'm not reviewing. Uh, for Voices Wrestling, and I think I, I'm not sure how many I'm going to review after this. Maybe like just one more. But uh, for any 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 G1 show that I do not review on the site, I'm gonna just throw my star ratings on my Twitter after I see the show, just so you can get a quick view of what I thought of the matches. Um, you can follow my work at Voices of Wrestling. Uh, I reviewed the Dallas show for the site, so you can check that out. Um, and then I also do stuff like Ring of Honor and the occasional jump in on a WWE review every so often. Um, I do have a couple pieces coming up in Fighting, uh, Fighting Spirit magazine. Uh, I believe I'm doing the recaps for uh, the Fight for the Fallen Fight for the Fallen show, and as well as the Evolve uh, 10th anniversary show. So when uh, you can check that out. Uh, whenever that issue comes out, which I believe is the last issue of FSM, which is uh, very sad. Uh, Joy to writing there for the last, uh, I guess, like two and a half, three years or so. It's been a lot of fun writing for them. Um, and then I think I, I, I'll, I'll plug my uh, EWR, WCW thing that I have on the forum. I haven't updated that in a while, but uh, I, I'll plan to get back on that. Uh, just just posting stuff there. Um, and is there anything else? Um, well, I, since since we did mention sort of the 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 pay-per-view at the top, uh, I'll just close by saying that I don't know if you noticed this in the I I've, I've had it on mute in the background. and I noticed that for tomorrow, they're advertising a reunion raw with like Hogan and Austin and like a bunch of old timers coming back, a bunch of legends. so, I think it's hilarious that they're still <laughs> struggling for anything they can to pop a rating. So I just think that's funny. Uh, and yep. So thank you, Sean, for coming on as always folks. We will be back next week. Like I said earlier, we'll be talking the next four G one shows. Plus also we'll be talking about DDT Peter Pan, which is happening late, late night tonight, Eastern time tomorrow, Japanese time, or well, I guess today, Japanese time, I guess it's already the next day. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at WrestleOmakase. Wrestling does not fit. And folks, as always, we thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.